I'm a dude, and I'm inviting you to join me on a podcast about brews. Does that include stouts? Yes. Yes, of course it includes stouts. Like I was saying, join us every Saturday on the journey hey, hey, into... Hey, co- wait a minute. Do you, do you guys do anything about, like, IPAs? Yes. Like that? Yes, of, yes, of, yes, we do IPAs. Okay. It's, okay. It, yes. Anyway, join us on the Journey into Comics Network for Brews with Dudes. Whoa, whoa, po- hey, hey, do you... Have you guys ever... Do you care if I bring some Zima on? Yes, I care if you bring Zima. Zima doesn't count. Zima... Oh. Zima... Dr. Dongo. Anyway, join us every Saturday for a podcast that delves into the craft brew world. The following, the following. The following. Journey into Comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. Hey, hey, this is Josh Richmond, and you are listening to the Voice of Survival podcast, exclusively on the Journey into Comics Network. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of the Voice of Survival podcast here in Season 2. I am kind of your host, Nate. Now, usually I am your guys' host. Today I have a very special guest with me. Welcome back, the first ever two-time... This isn't really... Actually, you are the only other host in the history of the Voice of Survival podcast officially, <laughs> if if we're being true here. But welcome back, Tyler McLaughlin. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. We just had a nice, almost mini Journey into Comics, mini JIC pre-show. Um, we're both thoroughly ready oh. for, for Endgame uh, tomorrow night for you, Friday night for me. Um Really excited to do this show. You and I have been talking about it for a long time. And, you know, I came onto the network, and right away you were like, I want you as a guest for Voices Survival when we, when, when we can set it up. How would you like to do it before that as the host? And I was like, well, I mean, I, I can do that. Yeah. And I'm glad to be back. Dude, it was crazy because, okay, so... Fate is a funny little bitch. You drew cards during Fool's Week first year mm-hmm. to be the host of the show. And you brought your homie Travis Wilson on. And you guys had an amazing conversation. It was one of the best podcasts personally I've ever listened to. Just the depth of his story and the the triumphs and tragedies he had to kind of overcome to be where he was, man. Well, thank it, you. Was, it was amazing, you know. And your ability to lead that conversation just set the tone for me just being like, okay... If, like, anything were to ever happen to me, I know somebody who could actually keep the voice of survival alive and kicking, you know? So well, I appreciate that. Yeah, man, for sure. So you and I were chatting... Fuck. I know it was leading up to us seeing Captain Marvel together. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, like, exactly when. And you, you said something to the effect of, like, 
how would you feel about me interviewing you, which that's backwards, Tyler interviewing Nate, uh, just so that people get what I'm trying to say here, mm-hmm. uh, for The Voice of Survival since, you know, it's always been your show, but like you have a story to tell too. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a fucking dope idea. So we've been trying to set this up for a while now, man. And uh, wh- where did that come from for you? That's the, like the one question I'm going to ask. Like, what gave you the idea to to even ask me? Because I feel like I'm just a guy who just is, you know, constantly just doing stuff. I'm not, you know, whatever, thinking about the past and the journey and things of that nature. Well, I remember, like way, way back in the annals of time, which you know, in reality, was like a little bit more than 12 months ago. Um, you know, I was still getting familiar with the network and, and you had, you had kind of started with, with some of the, or a, a good portion of the hosts that were on the network at the time. And I remember in our original group chat that you had said something along the lines of eventually I would like one of you or someone, um, you know, even if it was just you by yourself to do your episode. And I don't remember exactly how the conversation went, but it was like, okay, you know, we'll do it eventually. And then along the same lines, we were having a conversation in the group chat and you were like, you know, I'm trying to, trying to, you know, kind of roadmap what season two of The Voice of Survival is going to be. And I just thought about it, you know, like, I, I like I mean I like to have conversations with you enough already but you know and I consider you one of my good friends and I don't I don't really know much about your journey I mean I, I know I know some of the bumps and and some of the really important stuff but I don't know a lot about Nate in the you know just kind of the mundane day-to-day life especially when you were a teenager you know so I thought this would be a good opportunity to learn more about one of my good friends, somebody that pretty much from day one has opened their their door and their home to me, and you Fuck know, a. yeah, I, it didn't it didn't feel right for me to just kind of leave you calling to the void like someone do this show with me. I can be that guy. I can do that for you because you've done a lot for me. Well, I'm. Hey, man, I'm glad that. Uh... Well, first of all, I'm glad that you remembered me ever saying that because a lot of times, I'm going to be honest, I'm usually always trying to create concepts and ideas and the group chats are places where I leave memos to myself because I don't write notes. I don't fucking have time for notes, but if something good pops in there, I'll send it to you guys, I'll send it to the girls, I'll send it to Nick Max and just whoever in the moment I feel will understand where my headspace is and maybe can give me at some point or, or maybe not some energy back that, that really fuels the story. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you even remembered that I said that. Cause it was just like one of those random, I threw it on the wall. Like maybe somebody can interview me. Cool. Whatever. I don't really, I'm on to the next thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I don't really have anything else to, to, to start with other than just saying, I guess it's your show now and I'm going to let you take over and start the, uh, start this, I've never been on this side of the table. It's quite weird. Well, I, I was going to start it really, really simply by just saying, I mean, let's let's talk about your early years. Where are you from? Did you did you move around a lot as a kid? Were you, um, 
you know, were you a uh, blue-collar, red-blooded American who protected their home and household with with Nerf guns? And, I mean, let's talk a little bit about that. Okay, so uh, I was born in a town called Danville, Illinois. It's probably got like, I don't know, 12,000, 15,000 people or something like that. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I didn't live there, though, but I, it was just the big major city. So birth is in a different place. My actual growing up for formative start of my life was in Hoopston, Illinois, a uh, okay. town of 6,000 people in central Illinois. Literally, there's fucking nothing. It's corn, corn. And literally, I'm, this is not a joke. This is not me trying to set up a gag. At one point in time, Hoopston was the sweet corn capital of the world. I can believe it. Most produced sweet corn on the planet from this place. Things change, though, and industry changes, and a lot of the jobs left, a lot of the factory jobs out the door mean people are out the door and and looking for other things. So I kind of grew up not really, I don't want to say in in poverty per se. I just want to say that my parents were, like my dad lost his job the day my mom said that she was pregnant with me. Like the universe said, "Hey, Jim, fuck you. Here we go. Like, mm-hmm. here's your journey." And and now it's funny because we look back on that now, and it's like literally inherited Philip's luck. I might be a lucky individual who has a lot of cool shit that's happened to me in my life, but I have also witnessed the dumbest, most insane bullshit luck you've ever ever experienced. You know, like one in a trillion odds. So growing up for me was really interesting because. I remember the house I grew up in. It was on Lincoln Street, and uh, it was multi-floored. Uh, I can remember, man, you know, there's a lot of little memories that pop out from that house. Uh, when I was probably like three and a half, the bowling alley that was behind our house burnt to the ground. Was there any and, Was there any damage or risk to your home? Or was it that no, close? It, there, was, there was like probably two parking lots big space of space between us and that so i mean it was like in our in our backyard when you're a kid it seems in your backyard when you're seeing this fire but it was huge and it devastated our town man it was unexpected and i think that's an interesting thing to note that fire has been a big part of my journey and i'm an aries i don't know if that's like fucking correlated or some weird shit but like so there was the bowling alley fire when i was three and then i'm five years old on the playground my first year in kindergarten it's like the spring probably like March getting towards the end of the first school year. So I'm like almost going to be a first grader and the big factory in town called Stokely's caught fire Mm -hmm. and that burned fucking gigantic. I mean, it was the big, I remember just being on the playground and looking up and seeing the black fucking plumes of smoke and just being like, it's chaos. It was like apocalypse for that time. Cause I'm five. I didn't know any better, you know? Right. Um, you know, my parents, in my early years, I, it seemed that they got along pretty well, and they dealt with tragedy and stuff really well. Like, my grandpa uh, on my dad's side went in for a routine surgery to have his leg removed because of gangrene, and his heart stopped. And because he had a DNR, they did not resuscitate him, and he mm-hmm. is deceased. So my dad, at like, uh, like he was like, what, 30 years old, lost his dad, mm-hmm. and was like a man with fucking no guide now. Right. And I watched my mom and him be comforting to each other. And there was at least at that time, I think love as it were, but, um, 
also, I could also tell that trouble was brewing as we started to, as I started to get older and I noticed that there were arguments kind of on the horizon and stuff and weird things were happening and people who I weren't expecting to come to our house were sometimes showing up at our place. I was staying with different family members sometimes because there were things always happening and, uh, that was always fun. I loved fucking going to my different family members' houses and shit, you know? Like, my grandpa had a cool fucking house that I got to play around with and play in and shit. And had this, like, they built this pit. That's probably loud as fuck. If you heard those dogs, folks, I'm so sorry. But uh, <laughs> Tyler definitely did. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so being at my grandpa's house, like, it was cool because there was, like, a lot of fun shit to do or whatever. So that was never weird. But then, like, I got to about six years old well of course when i was three my parents had another kid my sister sam so i grew up with her and she was like my fucking little buddy my companion and we did everything together you know are you two the Uh, only children well we're the only children of kelly and jim okay now my mom had another kid taylor and i love her to death she doesn't speak to me she has a really there's so much drama we're going to get into about my family because I, I, you know, it, it probably does need to be at least said once for the record, you know, so, uh, but it, we'll get there eventually. So, me and my sister, you know, did everything together. And of course, my mom and dad in 93, I think it was. Yeah, Sam was three and a half, and I was, yeah, that's about right. So, I was like just out of kindergarten, getting ready to go through the summertime. Mm-hmm. My parents separated. My mom moved to Champaign, and my dad, I think stayed in Hoopston. Maybe he lived with, I think he actually went and lived with my grandma. But we were back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, kind of with no home. We'd stay with her sometimes. We'd stay with him sometimes. There was no really stability. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, not to call her out, but she was fooling around with the Coke man, like this guy that delivered Coca-Cola, like gotten, and that was kind of maybe why there was some friction with my parents or whatever. And uh, it was really strange times, man, because it was me and my sister kind of fending for ourselves. <clears throat> And getting into really crazy adventures. You know, we were at my mom's one time, and she was fucking around with that guy and not paying attention to her kids and told us we could go out and play. We adventured all the way to the where the apartments that she was staying, we adventured all the way to the pool, which was closed. But my sister happened to get herself half stuck in the fence of the pool. Mm. So she's like three and a half, and I'm five going, what the, f-? you know, like, what do I do? And I had to like ingenuity thing for myself squeeze some things apart to to get her head out because that's what was stuck you know right and you know and i'm thinking i look back at that shit now and i'm like dude my little sister could have fucking died right there man Mm -hmm. like you know and and it's like you don't i guess now i feel like kind of an asshole because i'm calling my mom out for being a shitty parent a little bit but you know also i want to say that now that i am a parental figure to a younger kid I can't fault her because when you have a child in your life, you, I mean, not to say that what she did was right, but you can't expect that you're going to make every correct decision. Right. Because it's a first time thing. When I think, and it is learning. I think this is a good opportunity too to, to kind of rewind a little bit. You brought up both the fires and you brought up some imagery, um, of arguments and, and kind of adventuring back and forth from family member to family member. You know, as a, as, as an adult now, I, I think it's fascinating sometimes 
not necessarily to reminisce or, or be nostalgic, but just, you know, you and I talked earlier about random, random memories popping into your head that you can't really, it's kind of fuzzy. Like you remember, you remember what happened, but you don't remember any of the details or, or you might remember some like very particular things. Like there was a guy wearing a bright red shirt in this, in this memory that I have, but I don't remember anything else about where I was at or, or what we were doing. But I mean, it's such a profound thing to think about stuff that sticks with you when you're a child, you know? I would imagine, you know, if if you had the artistic ability, and I'm not saying that you don't, to just pull the image of you standing on the playground as as um, you know, a five year old or or however old you were, you said you were at the time, um, and yeah, looking correct, and and looking at that that plume of smoke, you know, hovering over your town of of one of the major major pieces of industry for the community. I mean, if you had if you had the ability to just recreate that, perfect the way that your eyes saw it the first time. I mean, I'm sure it would be, um, you know, it would be a very powerful image. And it, oh it's, yeah, I mean, it, even thinking about it now, I'm just like, damn. And it, and it's not something you know? that it's not something that is that necessarily um, immediately affected you. But for some reason, just that image has stuck with you that long. You know, the the generation before us talks about where they were during the Kennedy assassination. Our generation talks about where we were when 9-11 happened. You know, there's major events like that. And then there's the little stuff that kind of filters in on the bottom that we forget about. And then every now and then you might see someone burning leaves or... or um, a house fire and you immediately think about, Hey, I remember what that looked like when I was standing on the playground, you know? Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, I'm glad you said that because a lot of times for me, it's like the, my, you know, for me, not only is it the imagery, but music is tied Mm -hmm. to so many of the, um, defining moments of things that either changed my perception on the life experience or, um, you know, because it was a tragic thing that stuck out, the song specifically, like, brings up a lot of hurt in the moment if I hear that song or whatever. But, like, um, there is a lot of that imagery, though. And I think that I, it's I'm, I'm going to say this in a really fucking weird way. Uh, don't get me twisted. But, like, I feel like my subconscious self in some way is almost like torturing myself with the tragedy that I've already lived through. It's like, Hey man, do you remember that? And it's like, yeah, I do. I kind of don't want to, but that's cool. Like, I'm glad you, and and it's not like one of those things that I, some people I know who suffer from PTSD and that's a totally different thing than what I go through. I don't get like crazy fits of emotion out of nowhere and stuff. Like a lot of it is just me going like, fuck man. Like, I can't believe I got through that shit. You know, like mm-hmm. really, I can't believe I'm here talking to you today because there are so many fucking microscopic factors in the journey that could have shifted a fucking milli-degree in this whole entire journey and and none of this is here so moments um, of moments of unwanted powerful reflection 
man. And, and like you wouldn't believe, you know, and, uh, you know, one thing I want to say though, real quick is there's, there's like one trip that my parents took specifically where they were gone for almost two weeks because my mom had to have surgery on both of her arms. Okay. Okay. And in that time it was like 91. So my little sister was very little and I, and I'm, I think she might, might have went with them because I don't really recall. I'm like fuzzy memory because I was really still pretty young. But I do remember that the whole trip, both my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family kept spoiling me by going to like big box stores and we would pick out the Batman Returns toys. And I had so many fucking dope. I, I wish I still had them. Like I had the original Catwoman. I had the fucking original Penguin toy from that that came with the little mini Penguin action figure that shot a fucking rocket. Like, oh, it was so cool, man. There were so many neat. That one experience is like a really truly joyous part of my journey when I was very young, where my parents were away, and it was the first time where I felt safe with family, and I understood that like trust. Hmm. So one of the next questions I was going to say, sure. so from from my childhood, I've, I've repressed a lot of the my mom and dad stuff, especially because I was so little. Um, yeah. But there, there's like very specific arguments that I remember my parents having, and then my level, invol- level of involvement differs. But I always remember those you know, those arguments or those altercations or instances very, very vividly. Were you, as, as far as your parents' relationship, when they were into it, were you involved in any of that? Or was it, let's go in the other room and have our disagreement because we don't want our kids to see it? Well, uh, you know, I'm glad you, you, you asked this question because uh, looking back at it, I was probably never meant to be in the position I got put in, and I think that's a lot of the reason why my dad has been so strongly in me chasing my dreams as an adult, mm-hmm. uh, because my mom, and again, I'm not trying to be an asshole, man. I'm really, I genuinely love her. It's not about that at all, but she used me as a pawn in their divorce, and like, you know, I get to seven, eight years old, and when I'm eight years old, of course, they'd gotten back together. It kind of left that off the story that they got. They separated for a time, and then they decided they wanted to make it work. We all, the whole family, moved to Champaign, Illinois. So now we're an hour from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. I'm in a school where I'm maybe one of four white kids that go to the school because we didn't have a lot of money. We shouldn't really have been living in Champaign. And it was it was culture shock because Hoopston, I'm not going to lie, at the time... There were not very many African American families, so I was not. I was very naive to that culture, mm-hmm. and it was different. I wasn't like I was always bullied. I will say it was a lot more aggressive than the school I was used to, and I wasn't. It wasn't just about making friends. There was a lot of people trying to impress people, and and always a competition. And I saw it as something different. My parents decide after me not having the best time in my first grade. We're moving back to Hoopston. And truth be told, I'm actually recording in the house they bought when they decided to move back to Hoopston. Okay. I'm in that house right now when I'm talking to you. So it's that's powerful. Uh, so they, you know, things are good. Like the course looks good. Our family's back to normal. Mom and dad seem happy. Me and Sam are cool. 
I've got literally on all sides of me neighborhood kids that I know and am already friends with. Mm -hmm. So I am literally in my pack, okay? So it's 95, and it's March 19th, and it's the night that Michael Jordan is coming back and coming out of retirement. So he had played. They won three championships. His father got killed by some crazy guy. And he went and did baseball for two years and then came back. Right. Wearing the 4-5, right? So that night, we are. my family is huge Chicago Bulls fans, okay? Anticipation is ripe. My sister and I are like, hey, we want to go over and play at the Tyler's house. Not Tyler, the Tyler's. That's their last name. So Ryan and Malia Tyler are our cross-the-street neighbors, and they're great people. And had a lot of fun memories and, and life experience. Sometimes Ryan and I fought because we were both like kind of trying to be that quote unquote alpha. Right. But um on this particular day, the whole my whole worldview shifted permanently. And it and it changed. And I, I've I've briefly mentioned this. Uh I think I did a little like road to survival in season one where I talked partially about this, but so my best memory is this. We went to the Tyler's house. We're playing. We were doing hide-and-seek. We could hear my dad yelling, not yelling at my mom or anything, but he was yelling for us, hey, kids. So we came around from the back, and my mom and dad were on the front porch, and they said, hey, Sam needs to come and have a shower at some point now or later. And I said, Sammy, why don't you just go now, and then you come back and play, and you'll be clean. It'll be cool, right? But I did not walk her across the street, which is okay, okay, um, at first. It seemed okay because she had done this a couple few hundred times. She was like five, and we were in a small town where they're not cars, okay? Mm-hmm. So she said, she's like, um, I'm going to play for a little bit longer. Okay, cool. And I was like, well, when you want to cross the street, let me know, and I'll walk you over there. So... She said she was going to go, and I said, you want me to go over there with you? And she said, no, I'm fine. I got it. And then the whole world flipped because I hear the tires screech. I hear a thud. I see my sister on the ground, and she looks dead. She's not breathing. I, as an eight-year-old, have taken in a lot of cuss words Okay, but I don't I've never to this point said cuss words unless a, an adult has prompted me. Hey, say shit, shit. Ha <laughs> ha. It's a funny gag, right? Right. So these people hit my sister with their fucking car and I scream at them as eight, an 8-year-old, you fucking killed her. And I'm just over and over again saying that and it's to the point that my parents come out, then my mom rushes out and she fucking loses it. She grabs my sister and moves her humongous fucking mistake could have killed her thankfully it did not uh but she wanted her out of the road because my sister's just laying there in the road Mm -hmm. okay and so here are some factors the guy was doing 45 and a 30 it was foggy he didn't have his lights on and he might not have been paying attention it's possible that he was like fiddling with a cd or tape player or some shit Mm -hmm. she just didn't see him because he didn't have his lights on and it's It's fate. So she breaks both of her legs. She's in a coma for nine days, unresponsive. They airlift her to Carl Clinic. We get in my aunt and uncle's car, and they did 120 miles an hour to the hospital. It was the craziest shit. Uh, We actually beat the helicopter to the hospital, which I don't know how that works, but that's what happened. Um, 
And then it was, you know, kind of fuzzy for a while and it was dark. That was a really dark time in my life. You know, I didn't know if I was going to have a sister. I didn't know how that was going to play out. And then she woke up and I was there when she did. And that was like, that's a powerful thing. You know, that's like, I was not expecting to be there when she came to and she came to and saw me and that made her smile. So it was like, whoa, we've got her back. Like my little, my friend is back. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so she came home in a three-quarters body cast. It went up to her chest and got her legs were, like, just, in like, immobile with, like, a stability bar between them, and she was in a wheelchair. And that was a learning experience as a fucking eight-year-old, having a wheelchair, having to wheelchair your little sister around and things of that nature and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were some cool perks, I guess, from her getting hit, if you want to look at it like that. Like, her and I now as adults joke, like, well, we at least got the pool. That was fucking nice, you know, because the the doctors, as a part of the settlement, uh, because this guy was in the wrong and uh, there was a, a case, uh, and because he was found at fault, my sister got like awarded a hundred and thirty thousand dollars or something shit like that, mm-hmm. um, and it was one of those when she turns twenty one she gets it. Mm-hmm. But another part of the deal was the the people who hit her had to immediately because of her physical therapy pay for us to have a pool because she needed that to have heal and my parents were not rich enough to drive to and from champagne every day mm-hmm. to give her her physical therapy so this was like this is how you're gonna have to do it so that's what came to and we got the cool pool and that's and that's just been like a fun little thing we've been able to have as a family you know and it's like this weird um it's almost like a monument to that history you know of like her going through that and uh it was also strange too and overwhelming going back to school after that. Cause like everybody looked at me like the weird kid. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, my sister was the one that almost died and like the whole town knew about it. Cause we're a fucking small town. So I, I just, you know, as an adult now I caution to wonder what everybody was saying and thinking and wondering about the fucking Phillips family when that shit went down. But, uh, we got through it, man. And it was, it was hard. Uh, shortly after that, my parents divorced my mom was fucking around with the art teacher at the Hoopston school, which now is my stepdad. That's why I said it. Cause if it would have just been some guy, I wouldn't have probably thrown her under the bus like that, but he actually is a pretty cool dude. And you know, again, tragedy changes people. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine being 32 years old, which my mom was at the time. I'm pretty sure. And watching your daughter almost die. Like I don't, I, I can't even envision the kind of wedge that might drive between two people, you know? So I really, I try not to blame them, but then, and this is now we're, we're fast forwarding into now I'm eight, moving into nine, my parents are divorced and I've officially become a pawn on a chessboard that I am not aware I am on. And, you know, maybe some of the listeners aren't going to be so thrilled to hear things like this, but my, uh, my mom was doing things like, okay, the first Christmas they were divorced. My dad's like, Hey, um, we don't have a lot of money cause it was just me and him. I, like I said, uh, off air earlier to you, I had made the conscious effort that I was going to live with my dad and had to tell a judge that. And uh, I've blocked that, really blocked that on my memory. My dad has told me I did it. My mom talked to me about it once. I don't really recall doing it. So is that, it, it's just is that there. Is that something that happened immediately um, when, you, when your parents decided to divorce officially, legally? Was that something that took place right away? No, actually, great question. Uh, again, nailing it with the, with the points. Okay, so 
here's what here's like kind of the way it went worked. So mom and dad decided they were getting a divorce and it was over. And I was like, okay, I'm dealing with it. And it was very stressful for me. Again, we'd just been through this family tragedy, you know, and I thought we were going to be able to make it on the other side of this. We'd gotten through my sister almost dying. Like what else can we have? What, what else do we have to overcome, you know, to keep this going? And uh, my mom moved out and we moved with her. And okay. I was there, well, my dad moved out and we stayed here, I guess, is really how it actually played out. Because, so she stayed in the house that I'm in right now for like a month. And my stepdad was coming around. And one night he came around and he was drunk and he was talking shit about my dad. And I, I like, I'm eight. I can fucking understand fucking English, you know what I'm saying? So I called my dad because I want to talk to him. And I was like, hey, man. He's talking bad about you. I don't like it. And I don't want to live here anymore. I can't. I, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. And he said, okay, well, you can't come stay with me right now because I'm living with my buddy in Lafayette, and that's just not great living conditions for a kid. Let me figure it out. So he said, uh, he called me a couple, like a day later, and he said, your, uh, your grandma's going to watch you. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went over to my grandma's and I told her what I wanted. And I said, I really want to live with dad, with you here. Mm -hmm. And she, her wheels fucking went to a different place, you know? And I think she realized what I was saying. So she said, go call your mom and tell her right now. You have to call her and tell her if that's really how you feel. So I'm like, okay. So I call mom and I'm like crying and I'm like, listen, I don't like Carl. He's not a good dude at the time. I just, again, I'm a kid and uh, I want to live with dad at grandma's house. And that's, and that's how it's going to be. And she said, well, he'll have to make it something in court or something. She said something to that effect and then hung up. And I was like, oh, shook, you know, and, and dad did not let me go back with her after that. Mm-hmm. Like uh, until this matter was settled, he, he literally was like, Nate probably needs to be with me. He's really not doing good, you know, whatever. So I stayed with him. We ended up moving in with my grandma. It was cool. We lived there for probably like a month and a half. And then mom moved out of this house and dad bought the house back or got the house back in the finalization of the divorce. She got money. He got the house. And uh, we moved. Dad, Dad and I moved here. Sam lived with mom and she didn't have a choice. But I, I got I got to have a choice, which was I was very grateful for. I look back on my life now, and the guy you're talking to today literally cannot be alive and exist if I still live with my mom. Because one thing, the way that she wanted me to be someone I'm not and the way she kind of bullied me about stuff, I probably would have, like, hurt myself or done something really terrible. Mm-hmm. Just I mean, I saw my sister go through it, and my sister's a very – I mean – I applaud my sister Sam more than any other human because she has been through every fucking trauma you can envision. She's known people who she's watched die right in front of her. She got hit by a car. She's, you know, almost had a child and then not been able to. Like, all kinds of crazy shit, you know, and she just soldiers on. And she's just like, I got this. Whatever. It's fucking life. Lost the use of both of her fucking arms. Like, what the fuck, man? So, um... She didn't have that choice, but she was very strong and, and, and survived my mom and, and, and the entourage. But I got the different brunt because first Christmas here and my dad's like, hey, we don't really have a lot of money and I need the, the Christmas tree skirt that you took. You have an extra. Can I have my one back that my mom had given me? 
And my mom just was like, oh, yeah, sure, cool. And she dropped it off. And I'll never, I'll never fucking forget. We were downstairs. It's like two days before Christmas. We had this tree set up, but he wanted to get the presents down and whatnot. And she drops this skirt off, and he unrolls it. And spray painted on there is Merry Christmas, asshole. And wow. I read that at eight years old and was like, what the fuck? You know, so that was like one of the first examples of me seeing the game and what she was trying to play. And man, my mom was trying to just like emotionally kill my dad. And I think she damn near succeeded, but I think he has an indomitable spirit and he just will not fucking stay down. Like he doesn't let stupid, like he learned, he's like, fuck this. I could let her beat me down or I can just like say whatever, Kelly play the stupid fucking game. And, and he did, you know, but like, um, there was a time these and these are just again things off the top of my mind when you're talking about the divorce that pop in there but like there was a time when i was over at her house and she said hey like i don't know if you know what this means but when you go home tell your dad he's a dickhead so she just said that no anger just like said it to me okay i walk in the house dad's upstairs brushing his teeth i walk in i'm like hey dad mom wanted me to call you a dickhead immediately he's on the fucking phone like in its war mm-hmm. you know and that was kind of my life for a few years, man. And and really, my dad, bless his heart, has a, a mad temper. It's a Phillips thing. My grandfather had a crazy temper. He was a, you know, he went and he was a fucking welder on tanks in World War II, like over there during the battles mm-hmm. and shit. Like when shit would break, my grandpa's over there with the fucking welding torch with no fucking eye protection. It's why his... Um, macular degeneration was like doubled and he went blind before he was like 50. Um, so my dad, most of his life had a father who was blind. So my dad's 10 years old working on cars by my grandpa telling him, do this, do this, do this, do this. If you're not strong enough to do this, put the tool here and put my hands here so I can do this. Like, so my dad, like he learned the hard way. So really he and I bunkering down together was a tough life, you know? He was hard on me sometimes, but that hardness and that um, kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps type thing, mm-hmm. uh, it, it definitely strengthened me as an adult and in the things I've had to do and overcome and just like being confident in myself a lot comes from how he raised me in that regard, so... Yeah, man, those like younger years, a lot of that is times with my dad was listening to music a lot and him working and not being able to be there for a lot of things because he was providing. So it was sports things that he would miss and all the, you know, all the typical fucking USA divorced kid shit you hear, you know, it's not, it's not anything special like that, that, that stuff's all boring and, and, and really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of it. Like, so what he missed me fucking miss a fucking hit and strike out three times in a baseball game. Big whoop. Mm-hmm. Pick my nose in the fucking outfield, you know? Like, it, it, it's, I wasn't a star player doing any of those things, you know? Uh, and it's really funny because I'm so naive. As a kid, as a young, young kid, when my parents were still together and we were in the first house on Lincoln, they were trying to get me to be musical, and they would give me guitars, and I wanted to be Ace Fraley, and like... It was there for a small time, and I guess I was just super blind to what that meant. And then, like, 
eight, nine, again, parents getting divorced and all that shit. But it was also the time that music got introduced to me formally through school. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to play trumpet. (laughs) Couldn't do that. Couldn't play trumpet. They gave me a pair of drumsticks and said, good luck. Because they didn't think I had talent to do anything that was going to be blowing. I was not skilled enough to blow anything, which I guess works out for me as an adult. I don't blow well. There's a joke there somewhere. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, they handed me drumsticks, man, and I fell in love, really. I fell in love with, they, they gave me bells and a drum pad, and I'm like going to the babysitter's house, and I'm drumming while I'm watching Power Rangers and Ninja Turtles and shit, and uh, learning like ju- the Jurassic Park theme on my xylophone in 95, because it's like the fucking cool thing or 96 because it's like the cool thing to do and shit and that was like the height of the the xylophone too i mean let's be honest oh yeah to- totally totally well said so like a lot of that a lot of those john williams scores that that do different musical things have stuff like the interesting xylophone lines and we were playing that as kids but very simplified versions and whatnot i really loved music man it was like one of those things um it was the first spark that i didn't know was a spark i guess mm-hmm so I want to I want to take a second and rewind just a little bit and and talk about your sister because sure you you let off with you know your sister is your sidekick you know your number one companion your little buddy um, you know you you go through the accident and she comes out of it and and life is good and then your family splits again you were obviously really close. How was your sister? How was you and your sister's relationship while you were separated? You know, you're you're two people on different islands, you know. Um, and then how did that? How did that kind of structure and set where your sister and your relationship is right now? So the way it worked and the way that they structured visitation or whatever was my mom would have sole custody of Sam. My dad would have sole custody of me. Every weekend, the kids, me and Sam, would be together, but we would alternate which parents' house. So, weekend A, dads, weekend B, mom, C, dads, you know, mom, back and forth, back and forth, whatever. That was protocol, and then it was like once in a while, if there was a holiday, one of them got us on that holiday unabated. There was no questions. It was not, they got me for X amount of time, and then I went and saw my other parent on the same day. No. The rule was, the kids stay together no matter what. So... Mm -hmm. Me and Sam were separate during the week and then together during the weekends. And it was kind of shell shock. We became different people in a lot of regards because of how we were being raised. She had this kind of bully human who was not nurturing her and really picking at her and being harsh to her. And I had somebody who was kind of showing me tough love because I think if he was soft, he would have broke down himself because of how damaged he was at the time. Uh, so it was hard, you know, and being apart and then together, man, we would fight more than anything after the divorce. Like, that's one thing I can say without question. Me and my sister's friendship was fractured because of the divorce, because it was how was mom doing things? How was dad doing things? What was Sam getting from mom? Because my mom would play games with me mentally, too, with things like, oh, well, I got your sister this brand new Game Boy expecting that she was going to get my dad to double down and buy me a Game Boy. But we were, of course, less fortunate. So it was this, like, again, 
part of the pawn game, part of the pawn game over and over and over again. So Sam and I fractured for sure, but we definitely, once we were getting older together, like in our, in our late teens and stuff, started to figure it out like, oh man, mom might kind of be a villain. Like she might not necessarily be a good guy and we need to watch each other's backs more and be more mm-hmm. on each other's side or we're not going to make it out together or at all for that matter. So we really did too. We, you know, getting into the high school and stuff, we bunkered down and it was again, thick as thieves. You know, I would, I ran in a lot of Sam's friend circles just cause they th- liked me cause I was the older dude. And you know, a lot of Sam's friends tried to date and or slash do other things with me that, you know, didn't really go anywhere in that regard. A lot of the time it, it was cause you're my sister's friend. That's strange to me, you know, but, um, we were th- we, again thick as thick as thieves once we got into the high school range and, and you know and then it was, um, you know a, a lot of a lot of the change though I guess I should probably not brush over the fact that we got hit with another, another family tragedy, um, when I was thirteen so my sister was ten so that's five years removed from the accident and the divorce or well not really well, hold on how's that math work out. I was eight when they got divorced. I became 13. Yes, that's right. She was 10 from five. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I'm just making sure, dude. My brain, dude, sometimes it doesn't. Okay, so the timeline is correct here. And 13, it's 2001. And it's June 15th, weekend of Father's Day. And it's Friday night, going into Saturday morning, Saturdays were swim meets. It was the first swim meet of the year. We were going to Monticello, Illinois to have our first meet of the year. They had a heated pool, which I fucking loved, especially because it's earlier in the summer, so it's a little bit chilly. And we got up that morning, and everything seemed normal. Mom seemed normal. Everything seemed fucking cool. We get in the van, which my mom had this green Astro van, shut the van, we're getting ready to drive to Monticello, and she said, your dad's not going to be making it to the uh, to the swim meet today. And we were like, okay, what's up? Like, what happened? And she just completely cold, because that's who she is. Your uncle got killed by a drunk driver last night. The end. Just like, so matter of fact, you know. Of course, I lose it. I fucking lost it because uh, I just like so many different things were in my head and I felt so helpless and like I'm 13 and here we are. It's like another fucking tragedies at my doorstep. Why can I not escape this shit? And um, went to the fucking swim meet and I swam my ass off and I took first place in all three events that I was in. And I hadn't talked to my dad the whole time. It was killing me. I had no idea what was going on or what the details were or anything of that nature. And, you know, finally when I talked to him and he told me and it was very sad. And then it was all the family going to my aunt's house and, and all these different, like, man, I was traumatized genuinely. And even to this day, like, if I go to my aunt's house and I walk into her bathroom, just because of my fear as a kid, because how fucking traumatic it was for me to learn about what had happened to my uncle, like learn actually how he died and the the really fucking gory details of it all. Um, for some weird reason, I always envisioned he was going to be in the bathtub. 
So like when I walk into her bathroom, I can't look at the bathtub because it literally triggers me to start freaking the fuck out and getting emotional because like I've just been trained all these years to just be that and -hmm. to just feel that. And it was it was very powerful. You know, it was my dad's sister's husband and my dad's. So my aunt and my dad are like super fucking tight. They're just like me and my sister. Mm-hmm. Again, same kind of thing. They were a tribe. They were close in age and ran in packs and all that shit. So, you know, she turned to my dad because she had no one else and knew nothing else. And it was it was fucking like like though that was the darkest timeline at that point in my life, man. Really, and it was like the most fucked up, profound thing. A month after I got baptized, this happened, right? Mm-hmm. And immediately, I started asking the question, like, wait a minute. <clears throat> If this God thing was real, why the fuck is this dude letting me suffer like this? Because this is fucking ridiculous. Like, why do I, why am I living on this planet to feel that? Why should any human feel the tragedy and loss of losing somebody? Because it's fucking awful. Like, there's no nicer way to put it, man. It's the worst. So... The time after that was really tough for my family, and I had a lot of guilt from my uncle's death. I saw him the Thursday before he died, uh, and I didn't say goodbye to him. Like, I didn't go up and give him a hug and say, bye, Uncle Jay. I just like, okay, we're going, and we just got in the car and left. I didn't think anything of it, you know? And that day was really prominent because they had just, in the town that he lived in, which is Ambia, Indiana, which is where my dad is from, uh, they had just finished resurrecting the brand new water towers. So my dad, having a early digital camera took pictures of me and my sister in front of these water towers. Like, and every time I look at those pictures now, I'm sick to my stomach. Cause it's like this day that I want back and I don't really live. I don't, I don't, I want to be honest when I say for the most part, I have not lived my life with any regrets. Me as a okay. person, I'm very much like what will be, will be, you know, but that's one of the few regrets I have, man, not saying goodbye to him because I, you know, obviously don't know. And uh, oh, it was like a really fucking tough blow, man, out of nowhere. Here we go, you know, and um, it defined me for a little bit. And then later that year, do you know what happened in September of 2001? <laughs> Should we go into that story? Do, yeah, do we, we need can... to have a recap? Well, I mean, we don't necessarily need to recap, but I mean... Uh... Like I said earlier, I mean, we didn't have the Kennedy assassination, but we had something as equally traumatic to our nation happen, you know, Absolutely. during during our generation. Every every generation has had something major or horrific, you know, whether it's a natural disaster or or something uh, political, you know, like the Kennedy assassination or 9-11. I mean, did, did you watch it? Okay, so I'm going to set the full stage of that that day and how I remember it as best I can as quickly as I can cuz I don't want to drone on about like this one this one's not a like as personal of a tragedy this is more of obviously a national tragedy. So, I had to get up early every day my freshman year of high school to go to marching band. I was a marching band nerd and I was a uh, I played cymbals. It's cool Hell as fuck. Oh yeah. And I got to do some cool like cymbal techniques and shit. Well, our School got picked as one of the few schools that was going to go to the University of Illinois and do our whole entire marching program on the U of I's football field. 
So we had to practice fucking frivolous, like nonstop all the time. So September 11th, 2001, normal day, obviously. Get up early, go to the school early because I walked. It's only a few blocks down. We're on the field. There's dew on the grass. I'll never forget it. I don't really know the time because time is relative when you're a kid. But I remember we were doing our march and there was a spot where I don't play anything. And I was just like kind of marching in place where I did. And I was looking at the American flag that was on the flagpole in front of our school. And I was like, man, stars and stripes look real beautiful today. I just I just thought it, you know, no big deal. Go into first hour and I had pretty sure I had PE first hour freshman year. Yeah, I did. And then second hour was English. I go to English in Mr. John's class, and Jeremy Dobkins ran in at the end of the class. He was like, did you guys hear a plane hit this building? And my mind, I'm still too naive. I'm too much of a kid that when I'm trying to visualize what he's saying, I'm envisioning a tiny single-engine plane hitting a gigantic skyscraper and nothing happening, right? Mm -hmm. Third hour, we went to um, Mr. Caparulo's math class, Algebra. The room is black. He has nothing on the boards. The TV is on and he is silent. And he is just not, he's literally not, he doesn't say a word to us. We all sit in silence in this math class and watch Tower 1 go, or the first tower to fall, the second tower then falls. Like we watch all these things. We're learning about the tragedy and everything. And then it was just the rest of the day is a blur and it's just focusing on this thing that has happened. Mm-hmm. I remember I got home and I was very sad and I'm like watching the news. The news is on and my dad comes home and he's freaking out and he's like, I just tried to get gas when I got home and it's like $5.97 or some shit and there's a line all the way down the fucking street because we're all going to die and there's a terrorist. And all the, you know, like he Obviously, everybody thought the absolute worst because it was not in their lifetime. They didn't expect this to happen. Right. So that set the tone though because... 9-11 happening reignited us going into a war state and all these big changes happened. And in doing so, the company my dad worked for had to let him go. So here we are. I'm 13. My uncle's dead. I've lived these tragedies, as you guys know. 9-11 has now happened. It's getting ready to be Christmas. My dad gets let off from his job. He is now on unemployment, looking for work and can't. He's doing side jobs, doing construction with buddies who can just give him cash when he can just to get us through. We're literally for six months living on only eating bologna and hot dogs in every form and fashion you can envision. And um, it's really rough. It was fucking so hard, man. But we come out on the other side of it. My dad got this job at this plant in the in Hoopston here, Silgan. He still works there, so it obviously worked out. Um, and then, you know, once he got the job at Silgan, things start to turn around because he's starting to make money and put money away because he's not driving an hour to Lafayette to go to work because he worked at Wabash National. Okay. Was where he worked at. And, and Triesco, which was a subsidiary of Wabash. Um, but the, the actual building that Wabash has that makes the, tr- the, the, the big panels for the trailers. The Durplate. That building, my dad, the Duraplate, thank you, the Duraplate building. My dad built that building. So, he, you know, he was a welder and that's what he did. And of course, he gets let go. And um, so, again, we're, we're out. But then he got the job at Silgan and it was cool because, like I said, he's starting to save money, put money away. He's starting to make money. And I remember I was a late sophomore 
in Mr. Reed's media class. And Mr. Reed came in. He said, hey, man, my kid, his son, had a Gibson Les Paul guitar for sale. My dad, when I was really little, had a guitar, but then from like four till 15, no guitar. And I had just just started working at McDonald's and got myself a bass by the time I was 15. So I'm like, Dad, you need this guitar, man. It's so cool. I'm like trying to sell him on it. He's like, I don't need a fucking guitar. I'm not interested in guitar. I don't want a guitar. And then he said, I want to go look at it. So we go to Mr. Reed's house. My dad plays it for five minutes. He puts it back in the case. He looks up. He goes, will you take 300 for it? Reed says, yeah, that's perfect. Dad signs a check, gives it to him. Now we have a guitar in the house. So now we're starting to really sow the seeds of who I become because while I've started, and, and we haven't even gotten to the, really the journey of my decision to so the year I need okay I need to back up just a tiny pinch in the story just a hair here. So the year before my uncle died, a big event happened, and I keep and I forget to mention it sometimes, but. October of 2000, I got to see my first rock and roll concert. I saw Kiss, right? Original lineup with makeup on their quote-unquote farewell tour right after Psycho Circus had been released, which was their first album with the original lineup in like 20-some years. I really wanted to go. I was a big fan of Kiss growing up. Dad was a huge fan of Kiss growing up. He had never seen Kiss live. I had never been to a concert his buddy Bob Witty has two tickets and happens to get sick the day before and says, I can't go to the concert. My dad buys the tickets for 100 bucks. It was like the last 100 bucks he had to really spend frivolously. And we fucking went, man. And I saw Gene Simmons play bass. And that sparked me that when I was old enough, I was going to get a job. I was going to buy a bass. I was going to start learning this instrument. And it was going to be what I did, which I did. I went at 14. I was like 14 and a half. I was going to be 15. I applied at McDonald's. I had to have my dad sign a work permit. They did not hire me. I called and annoyed the shit out of them until they eventually did hire me because I was not taking no for an answer. I was like, I'm getting this fucking job at McDonald's because I want this base. So they eventually hired me, and then like I did, I worked two years there. I picked up my base. I bought a BC Rich Warlock. It weighed almost half of my body mass at that time. <laughs> So here I am this and there's pictures, man. You can look it up on the on the my first band Draxus's Facebook page. There are pictures of the OG days. And here is Nate. I'm like 105 pounds soaking wet. And here's this 49 pound BC Rich Warlock that's also pretty much the same length as me. And it looked ridiculous, but I loved it, you know, and I was like playing a lot of different stuff. Uh, Blink-182 was like my first thing I did. I learned the entire Take Off Your Pants and Jacket album on bass. I loved it. There was just something about Mark Hoppus's bass playing that just, it did it for me, and it was really easy. Like, here's introduction level bass, how to play. Here you go, enjoy. And it was fun to play along to, but then like... Tool got introduced to me, and Metallica gets introduced to me, and now we're off to the races, and I want to start a band, and I'm trying to create this band called Rock Slide, which is like, really my dad's idea? It was something he wanted to do when he was a kid, and I was like, oh, what a better way to pay tribute to my dad than to start a band and call it the name he wanted to call a band, but it was going nowhere. I had a drummer. I had a me. I had a drummer. I had me. We weren't writing songs. We couldn't even play songs. We were just talking about being a band. It was like 
you know, pipe dream. Mm-hmm. And then we started talking with this guy named Brandon Stone and his buddy Jason Long. And they had a pipe dream to be a band too, but they also happened to have an instrument. They had a guitar and another guitar. So we decided we were going to jam. What are our mutual interests? We all agree on Metallica. We all agree For Whom the Bell Tolls is the first song. Our first practice is going to be on Halloween 2003. And uh, McDonald's calls me and they say, you can't, you have to work. You can't call in or you're fired. And I couldn't lose the job at the time, man. I had actually started to buy some other musical equipment and kind of had the itch to do it. So I wanted to have the best stuff and I didn't want to lose my job. So I jammed with Draxus downstairs in this house for like five minutes. It was awful. We did nothing. It didn't make any sense why we were doing it. Our drummer had brought his OG drum set over. And then we didn't practice for a couple weeks. We came back at it again. And the next chance we got, we practiced every day, five hours a day for two years straight. And we didn't get much better. That's the truth. We wrote some songs, which were cool. It was like the exploratory phase of writing songs. But like we could cover songs kind of. But if it came to a solo, there was not a single person in this band with enough fucking talent to solo like, say, Kirk Hammett or some of the other famous guitar players we really loved. Um, I decided at some point to make the switch from guitar or from bass to guitar because our guitar player, Jason, had... uh, Famously, like, just left this gig and it was really shitty to us, so we kicked him out. It was childhood drama, being kids and shit. Brandon and I soldiered on, and, and you know, Draxus was a beautiful thing that let me cut my teeth and learn how to be in the industry of music. Also, it put me in a controlled environment where if I was a dumbass and offended people, this small town USA is not big enough to tarnish my name now. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like... I'm glad I fucked up in Hoopston, Illinois when I was a kid and made an ass out of myself on the scene with how I was and my mentality of fuck every other band. We're the best band in the world. Fuck you if you're in another band. Don't go see other bands. Fuck them. They don't deserve to make music. We're the only band that you should be talking about. Like We had that mentality because we weren't good enough, and we all, but we also knew we could be good enough. We just had to have a push, and... We couldn't get it here, and it was, you know, a great, beautiful thing doing that band for so long. Um, I did that band all the way up and until the second or third episode of Journey into Comics podcast, if you can believe it. So it did have a little bit of carryover in the now. Um, Was that when you and Brandon first started to become friends? You know, Brandon and I were sort of friends before the band because of toys. We both like Transformers. We both like some... PlayStation games and whatnot. He was friends with my buddy Preston, so we all kind of ran in the same circles and shit. So, uh, you know, Brandon and I knew each other, and then we started to become friends, and then we were all hanging around each other, and at this point, Jason has his license, so we all can gang up in the car together as a band, and we're traveling places and eating Chinese food together, and, you know, really having that... Um, camaraderie band experience that I think is necessary to understand how to work with individuals in music. And I was not by any stretch of the imaginations easy to work with because I'm a perfectionist. If I hear something and it's not right, I'm going to say it and I'm not going to sugarcoat. I don't care if you're talented enough or not, I guess was what I was saying when I was at that point in my life, like learn it, do your best, 
fucking fake it as best you can until you get it. Like, don't just give up and say that's good enough, I guess, was my mentality, even though I had shortcomings as a musician, you know? So really having those dudes and those memories and driving to Champagne in the dead of winter, listening to Megadeth blaring with fucking Red Bulls and beef jerky and just chugging our Red Bulls and jamming on our beef jerky, like, those moments are genuinely fucking treasured to me in a different way than the music experience I'm having now. And we'll get to that eventually, but we got to kind of like navigate a little bit because <clears throat> Draxus is like the constant during these next fucking things we're going to talk about. I graduate high school, if you can believe it. Mm-hmm. I'm not a dummy. I was almost well. crowned prom. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Fair point. I was almost crowned prom king. Also, if you can believe it, Brandon, myself, and our buddy Preston all on the prom court. We took over that prom that year. We also had a mosh pit to enter Sandman at our prom because yeah. fuck them. It, yeah, man, we took over because, like, we, again, we were the cool kids because we were in a band and we were the only kids in a band in school at that time. So, like, I kind of ran with every click. I was friends with the preppy kids. I was friends with the stinky kids. I was friends with the goths and the fucking, you know, our, our eventual bass player, Tony was a Satanist, a straight-up Satanist in high school, and he got chastised, bullied, picked on, made fun of, awful things said to him on the regular, and I was his fucking friend, man, and I didn't give a fuck if he liked the devil. I was like, fucking shout at that motherfucker, you know? Like, bring it on. So um, I had to remove the fucking hat. It was killing my brain meats. I don't get to um, see that hair very often. Let that shit flow. Yeah. It's long. It's gross. Ugh. Anyways, so graduated high school, and I was jumping around jobs. I'd worked at IGA, which is the grocery store, for a time, and then I went back to McDonald's and worked there for two years for a time. Of course, I quit McDonald's because of Draxus. I had this fucking big gig. Our first, It was so tenacious, D. I wish it was fucking on film. I wish... Because it's so comedic. Like, uh, someday I'm going to write a sitcom, and this scene is going to play out, and I'm going to play it for you, so... At the time, the band and I had started using Yahoo Instant Messenger, and we had met these girls who happened to be real-life friends with my step-aunt, okay? These girls are hot to trot. They were fucking foxy biatches, if I do say so myself. And we were looking for some tail, if you know what I'm saying. We were cool kids. We are in a band, right? So we invite them here, three-hour drive, to come watch us play music. We have no PA. We only have amps and drums, and literally this whole time we were just scream-singing Metallica's For Whom the Bell Tolls over the top of the music, just so you could hear it, you know? Right? Just so you could, because we don't have a PA. So these girls on Valentine's Day drive with my aunt three hours north to see us do this shit show in a dark basement with a couple, like, fucking strobe lights and weird shit, and we thought we were the bee's knees and put on the best concert on earth we were so happy and then we're like hey we should go to monocle's pizza and celebrate and they're like okay and they didn't talk to us the whole time and then they just got up and left and never came back (laughs) (laughs) oh shit it was that bad it was that bad we had scared and terrified these girls that we had been internet talking to and of course my personal opinion, if you want my opinion, I think it's because Jason wasn't necessarily factual about he wasn't body positive and didn't tell the truth about who he was. So 
there was a little bit of a deception that had happened and these girls felt a little bit hurt by that. Um, but again, I don't really know because I wasn't talking in the private conversations. I just know how they all kind of responded to us. And it was very strange to have that kind of like honest rejection in our first attempt to have a show. Still didn't officially have a show at that point. We're not going to call that our first show because it doesn't really count. We did have another first show later. But, um, you know, so I you know, jumped around jobs and whatnot. And, of course, I went back to McDonald's after I quit because they were going to they wanted me to not play that big gig that was going to change my life. And I was going to get my wife from that show, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just came to terms with it. And eventually when I went back to McDonald's, they wanted me to be a manager type. And I was interested in it. I thought the pay would be good. Of course, the responsibility was astronomical for what they were asking me to do. There was a lot of shady shit that I was learning was happening that I just was naive to at first. And our bass player, Tony, had got this job at this place, Lifetime Doors. It's like a factory. Make good money, man. You work only four days a week. What more can you want? Cool. Go there. I fucking hate it. It smells like horse shit. Literally like fucking manure because they use horse bones for the glue for the doors. So it's like compacted. It stinks. It's the nastiest fucking smell you can imagine, right? So I work there, and initially I work there to build pallets. So I'm using a nail gun to build pallets all day out of scrap wood and scrap doors. If a door's fucked up, I have to build a pallet out of it, right? And I have to, like, nail. So I'm using this. I almost fucking shot through my finger a couple times and whatnot. Well, I tell my dad, I'm like, man, they, uh... They just recently said there's going to be some forklift jobs opening up there at Lifetime, and I want to get one because that's like a way higher paying thing, and you're just driving around. Like, that's much easier than doing this shit I'm doing. He said, well, let me take you to Silgan, which he did, and showed me how to use a forklift so I could take the test. I go in. I fucking ace this test. They take me from building pallets and put me in inlay which is literally where you're gluing the shit. So you're in the fucking horse glue area now, and it smells 10 times worse. So they punished me for trying to better myself, essentially. And because it's the worst job, and you like every shirt you have gets ruined because if the horse glue gets on it, it like eats through it over time. And it's like, it's it's not pretty, man. And I quit. One day I said, I'm going to get a job somewhere else. I'm going to take Monday off. This was in one week. So Monday I don't go into Lifetime Doors. Me and my buddy Will drive into Danville. We hit up all these different places, apply to all these different places. The last place I walk into is GameStop on Vermilion. There's a beautiful young lady in a black and white striped shirt with a green skirt on. Long skirt, not short. She's just gorgeous. She's killing it. And uh, I'm like, hey, I applied online to be your assistant manager. Did you guys get that application? I think I'd be great for the part. I have no idea what GameStop is about at this point, and I'm just, like, bullshitting. And the manager comes out, and she's like, Hi, I'm Liz. No, we didn't get your your uh, your uh, we didn't get your application because we don't do anything with online. We don't get any of that stuff. That's all through corporate. Oh, okay. So I'm like, so my interview's tomorrow then, right? I just straight up fucking say, and she's like, okay, sure, let's do it. So I have the interview with this lady the next day. I don't go to Lifetime Doors Day 2. So now two of the four days I'm supposed to work, I don't go. I do the interview. I still have no read on whether or not I'm going to get this job. Wednesday, I go to go in. I go in because I'm riding with Tony every day to work. Tony goes in. He quits that day. He literally drove there to quit. 
So now I'm there without a ride. I pretty much have to call in again because if I don't, I'm stuck there an hour from home. Fuck. Okay, so now I'm three days calling in. Thursday comes and I'm going to go in regular day. Go in in the morning. I talk to my soup. I tell him, like, sorry, man, Tony quit yesterday. It was fucking crazy. I didn't I didn't want to call in. I'm sorry I had to do that on you, whatever. And uh, go about my day, and it gets to about noon. And I went out to my lunch break. And I just felt something, man. I just didn't feel right. And I said, fuck it. I'm gone. And I walked. I never turned my, I never turned around. I never said anything to anybody. I just left and never came back. I just, I ghosted on him. And I'm driving back and I was like a little bit upset and whatever. And I'm like really bummed out. And I'm like, you know what? I don't need to be bummed out. I'm going to get home. And the first thing I'm going to do is call about that GameStop job. And they're going to give me that job. And I call and this lady answers. It's Kelly. She doesn't have any idea what I'm talking about. She says, call tomorrow. The manager will know tomorrow. Call in the next day, which is Friday. Liz answers. She's the manager. And she says, hey, Nate, we want you to come in Saturday and start working. You got the job. So on a whim, I quit and get this other job. And that's the, okay. So now here is where I want you to start paying attention to things happening in my life that are stepping stones to other things. On a whim, I quit my job, leading me to GameStop. Flashback. Do you know who the lady in the striped shirt was the first part of that story? Mm-mm. It was Sarah. She was the third key at GameStop. And the first day I worked there, I worked only with Sarah. So this girl, who I had no idea who she was, who I thought was gorgeous, is my now my boss on my first day, and she does not want to have anything to do with me. She literally tells me, go in system lock, which is a secret room where all the systems are kept, and reorganize it. It's a fucking mess, but she didn't want me on the floor because I was like, I was literally an idiot who had no idea, and I was just gonna make her day so much harder. So she just put me in a in a safe away from people and did everything by herself. And she's like, "It's much better this way." What she didn't realize is I'm super OCD and anal retentive, so I clean this fucking system lock so clean and organize it in such a way that it became the standard in that store that they still to this day use, okay? So she's like, wow, that's actually impressive. Like, holy shit, you're you're not bad. Like, cool. So then I started working there, and then her and I became friends, and then, like, I learned that she was in a really awful fucking situation with this really abusive dude, and her and I became even closer, and then, like, she wanted to leave him, and that eventually happens, and then, like, her and I start being together and whatnot, and that's been a fun, interesting journey being with Sarah for 12 years, and if I'm sitting here now today looking back at the annals of our relationship, you know, meeting Sarah is the catalyst for everything that my life now is. On all fronts, on everything that I get to say is who I am as a person and what I get to, the, the reality that I get to live that you know, that, that that so few know, like, it's her. Like, she sparked the network and she had ideas for Draxus when we first started coming back into the fold because we took a, a little bit of a hiatus. The band pretty much broke up. Brandon had quit. Jason was gone. Tony was leaving for the military. Mason had quit because he got a girl pregnant. Like, the band had fallen apart. And she, in 2008, said, you should try to get it back together. And I did. And we had some of the best times. And we had my dad drum. And that's a new experience for me where I get to share the stage with my father. And that's a, no one ever takes that away from me. 
And that's an experience. I don't know how to even quantify it. It's so special because you don't you don't have a lot of family combos in music that can work well together or that can recognize that it's a special thing to do. Mm-hmm. So many people take it for granted. Well, we're a family. Of course we can be musically inclined together. No, it's a lot of work. Persons I fought with most about the band and in the band was my dad because he's also a perfectionist. And he would call the bullshit that I let pass. So... There was no slipping, and we worked even harder when he was in the band, man. He had a fucking heart attack. Swear to God, he had a heart attack, okay? I take him to the hospital because he's not feeling right. He's, like, all pale, and he's clenching his chest, and he's not well. They say he has a mini heart attack. So a couple days go by after this is after he's been released and everything's cool, and he feels like he's having another one. So then they take him to the hospital where they took my sister when she got hit by the car, actually. And he gets an angiogram done. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. They put a little like cut in your leg and they shoot dye in your heart so they can see where the valves are and what's all good. For those of the listeners that might not know that, right? So they cut a slit in his fucking leg right to his main artery. And that day he looks them dead in the face and says, when I go home, can I drum? Is that cool? And they're like no, sir, you can't play rock band, because that was around the time the game rock band was out. And my dad's like, no, you fucks. He was super serious and pissed off that they patronized him. He's like, I play drums. I want to play my fucking drums. Can I do it, yes or no? And they said, well, you're going to have some soreness, and you risk tearing that open if you drum. Doesn't matter. Day later, my dad calls a practice. One day later, he calls a practice. We're all down there. We're We're playing for about 15 minutes, and he all of a sudden stops because he ripped it open. Like, he's a fucking gangster, man, you know? Like, what the fuck? Who does that, man? That's why I'm so tenacious and try not to, like... I guess... Man, I just realized there's a part of our story that I also have to travel back in time for. We'll get there, but... uh, he just made me a really tenacious dude, man. He made me like I saw him have pneumonia and perform in a show and just fucking soldier through and he coughing and hacking his fucking lungs up between songs and still playing. And it's like, what the fuck are you doing? You know? So I, as far as role models and people I admire, man, like my dad really set the bar. And that's why to go back to the, my original part of the point, like that's why playing music with him was so special. Cause in some of the best moments in my band, Draxus, I got to share with him, mm-hmm. you know? And so I got to share it with my friends and my dad in a different way, you know? And and um, I was really grateful for all that, those times, you know? Uh, yeah. I don't know where you even want to go from there. I, I feel like I just rambled for a few hundred minutes. Well, what, what do we have to go back in time for? Well, we should probably touch on my head trauma, that leads to who I am today. Okay. So I'm nine I'm nine years old in fifth grade. So it was like the tail end of fifth grade. And I was dating this girl named Elizabeth Lee. And apparently this kid who I also went to school with, Ricky Bell, had a crush on her, but I had no idea. I had no, no clue. But he thought I personally took her away from him. Okay. In a fit of rage and jealousy, and this kid having... Okay, so this kid, Ricky Bell, um, he had it rough for sure, because in my... Like, from fifth grade on, he was the only African-American kid in my class. He was picked on. A lot of tough shit had happened to him. He had a rough home life. Uh, 
Uh, he stabbed one of our teachers in the neck with a pencil. Whoa. R- really happened? Yeah. Um, so he was a really dangerous, volatile kid in fifth grade. And I was standing on the bus line waiting to go home. And he jumped me from behind and slammed my head into a locker so much that it bent the locker in. Okay. And it concussed me. I don't really remember a lot. I know I cried a lot because it hurt really bad. I know I ended up with a black eye, but I also know that after this happened, I was going to my mom's to stay and visit for that weekend. So she just let me go lay down on the couch and go to sleep. Hey, man, you have a concussion. What should you probably not let someone do? Go to sleep. Because it can do any kind of thing, right? Any kind of thing. So I don't know if you'll remember this. You might have been a little bit young, but there was an event on like NBC or ABC or some shit. It was like a TV show called Asteroid, and it was about or like Meteor or some shit. But it was essentially about this big meteor shower that was inevitably going to hit the planet and it was going to cause our destruction and demise like the next global ice age event. But it was this big CGI experience that was going to be on TV for the first time. And the week it was set to debut was my first migraine. And I remember because of that show, I came home from school. My head was hurting. I wasn't feeling right. This is like early sixth grade now because the year had changed. And I told dad I was going to go up and shower and uh, a couple, he never heard the shower turn on. And like an hour later, he found me laying in the bathroom floor just out because I had hurt so much from this migraine. So he like woke me up and I was still in a lot of pain. And he said, Hey, what's going on? What's going on? And I was like, my head, it's hurting. I it like won't stop hurting. And I'm like crying and I'm freaking out. And it's like, I, it's a pain I can't describe. It's in the back of my eyes, it's in my neck, it's in my temples. It was everywhere first experience of a migraine that I can genuinely recollect. And I've lived with those pretty much every day since. Like, there are days when I have a migraine that's so little, and you you suffer from them too, so you know what it's like, where you don't really have any pain, and you're like, oh yeah, I mean, I had a dull pain or whatever, it's nothing. And then there's weeks where you just can't escape it. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, your eyes are throbbing constantly, the light kills you smells hurt mm-hmm. how to fucking smells hurt man when I, that's I one think thing from, I think... go ahead no 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 go ahead I, it's just it's just that's crazy to me is that smells can hurt well i mean i'm i'm really glad that you told the story because for people that don't suffer from migraines it's hard enough to make them understand what we go through and you know you and i have talked about it on on air before about how how different it is person to person on how they how their body takes and and copes with a migraine and and the symptoms that they receive and experience it's it's totally different from person to person um, but i think for us that experience them some of the, some of what makes it worse is we remember because it's 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 so it's so traumatic on your body the first time that you experience it Absolutely. And I want to stress again, it's different for everybody. I mean, you basically passed out from pain. Your body just shut off because it fucking hurt so bad. The first time that I got a migraine, I thought that I was having an allergic reaction because if I get stung by a bee, I'll go into anaphylaxis. And the feeling... I had... 
I had pretty much worked for 22 hours straight. And it was in the summertime. It was during the day. And I was doing a mundane task. And I was like, man, I just, I do not feel right. And my whole body went numb. And my whole body felt like, you know what your foot feels like when it's asleep? Yes, that tingling yep. pain sensation. It's that's, not a good pain. That's, that's what my whole body felt like. And I was nauseous. But I couldn't throw up, and I was and like, "You couldn't beat the nausea. You were just like nope. in it." And I was like, oh. I, "I'm a," I, and and it felt like my throat was starting to swell up. And I was like, "There, there is something wrong with me. I have to go to the doctor right now." And and the people that I worked for at the time, they're like, "Well, yeah. I mean, you can leave if you want." And I, and I remember standing in the room with just pure bewilderment on my face, like. You're going to, I got to drive myself. Like, I don't want you to call an ambulance, but like, you're sitting in a chair. Like, you can't help me out here. What the fuck? Yeah. So That's super so, dangerous that they let you do that. Mm-hmm. So, well, I ended up having Skylar come get me. You know, we were dating at the time. She left work and came and got me. And I basically went to the emergency room and, and they pumped me full of enough fucking medication to knock me unconscious. But I just... You know, we've we've pointed out a couple times during during this episode that you know things that maybe not maybe aren't extremely traumatic or um, or don't appear to be extremely traumatic or kind of trivial things. Like I will never forget that that feeling that I had that first time that I had a migraine, and I'm sure that today you don't you can't forget the way that first one felt for you. Well, that's the bar, and um, it's not like it's ever a competition, but my dad, being that he lived with me through all these migraines and has experienced me go to different specialists and different doctors and have fucking CAT scans and all MRIs and everything you can think of for them to say, we have no idea why you have these. Sorry. Sorry. That's it. They, that, that is literally what doctors say. I can't help you other than to give you pain medication. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with him living through it, I, if I'm telling him about an episode I've had or a situation where I've been wiped out by a migraine, I try to like rank them. And he knows if anything gets anywhere near the first one, he knows that it's like, oh shit. And mm-hmm. uh, last year I had one like that, man. I'll never, I'll never, I scared, Sarah thought I was dying. Like that's how bad it was because. I just kept like moaning. I was in so much pain. I couldn't escape it. Nothing was working. I had taken a cyclobenzaprine, which mm. is a muscle relaxer. Yeah. Uh, it's my dad gave them to me in emergency situations, like especially this one. Take it. Okay, I take it. It's one of the rare experiences where I took one and I actually start getting the side effects. So what's one of the side effects? Vomiting. What do I do? Run to the toilet and puke up a 12-inch sub. That literally makes my migraine even fucking worse. And I did mm-hmm. pass out. I did pass out a second time. But that was not a... That wasn't the bar because I was already hurting at that level. That was, hey, I'm hurting at this level. And now puking has caused it to be exponentially worse. Mm-hmm. So, it again, not the worst natural one I've ever had. But it was definitely up there. i just thinking about that. But... Um, I where do you want to even go in the journey next, man? Because I feel like the you know the migraine thing we've kind of hashed out in in several different places. 
Um, but I did want to touch on anybody who may be naive and not listen and not listen to us talk about it before, at least know that we have them and go through that. So you left off with, you know, you're you're doing the GameStop thing, you're careering it up, you and Sarah are becoming a unit and not just individual people. Yeah. Your your dad your dad's still working, playing music, doing his thing. You're enjoying your time with the band. What I mean, what happens next? So, uh, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You know that line. <laughs> uh, GameStop started being really good to me, and uh, I climbed the ranks really fast. I'm a really good salesperson, not to suck my own dick on this podcast, but I could, you know sell ice to an Eskimo or whatever the fucking saying is. I don't know. But uh, GameStop at that time was about two things, getting Game Informer subscriptions and getting the fucking pre-orders. Those Mm -hmm. two things were how you made your name. And if you could do it well, they'd promote you. Well, I wanted a promotion bad because I liked that taste of what I thought was success, I guess, at that time. And and we're going to dive deeper into the the term success here a bit too. But um, So... They gave me third key. So I now am what Sarah was when I met her. Sarah gets transitioned to assistant manager, and Liz is at the top. Mm -hmm. This all comes from a big shakeup where the guy who was supposed to take assistant manager, no one wanted to work for. So we all literally mutinied and said, no, if you don't move him to this other store and bring somebody else in, we're not doing it. Him moving over to this other store by force, by our forcing his hand, essentially, caused me to get the promotion, which was, you know, was some of my motivation to get him out of the store selfish? Sure. But it was also because I knew the store was going to collapse if he was running it. He was a mess. This guy was having mental breakdowns on the weekly. His dad was having to come in and rescue him from shit that didn't, like, shit that did not need to be brought up in the workplace. Having not, Like, oh, my girlfriend did this to me. Whoa, is me. Have a mental episode. You know, it was like, if you're this unstable, man, you can't be assistant manager and have to delegate to people it's not going to work and sarah again bless her she wanted it she wanted to be in that role she had essentially done the assistant manager thing of course her getting the assistant manager gig turned into her being essentially store manager and our store manager just fucking off but uh that's for her show that you guys have heard the first episode of the voice survival she retells some of that but um so, like I said, with great power comes great responsibility and the error of my ways because I thought my friends were my friends and I started letting shit happen on my watch. And I'm letting more and more happen on my watch. I'm being more lax. I'm not really... I'm being a little cavalier with how much I give a fuck about whatever. And loss prevention came in and there was a big sting. They had been watching people who I worked with steal hundreds of thousands of dollars in games by not accepting trade-ins from people, keeping the high-valued trade-ins, and then trading them in under a different account, keeping that money, and then pre-ordering all the games they wanted. Clever operation, I'm honestly fucking gangster hustle you gotta you gotta you know some level of that grime is like okay like you you played the system GameStop is shitty we all know it's the fucking corporate mecca of evil and that's now kind of sounds Robin Hood-esque but it cost me my job and um it also cost me a lot of connection to Sarah she really resented me because she almost lost her job Mm Because it was on her watch, too, that I was letting things happen. But because 
I was letting them happen when she wasn't there. That's the big difference. She didn't know it was happening on her watch, and I put her job at risk, and it was it was bad, man. It, it fractured the friendships for everybody that was working at that place, and it was extremely rough for a while. I went and did a couple years at Office Max, and that was a learning experience, just working in the, again, sales, selling computers. I can sell it to anybody. That job was cool because you made commissions for every computer you sold. You got a little extra on your, on your fucking kickback, so... I was really good at that shit, man. I really loved it, and uh, I'm glad we're hearing the story because I sort of told this a little bit, uh, I think, on a recent JIC. But uh, So I'm working at Office Max, and it's Thanksgiving, and my uncle pulls me into a room. My mom's sister's husband, okay, pulls me into a room, and he says, Hey, man, I have a proposition for you. Um, we're about to move home. And I'm going to be taking over this position at Carter's Furniture, which is where a lot of our family members have worked throughout the years. And we want you to do sales. And I was like, fuck yes, I'll sell furniture till the goddamn cows come home. All about it. I'll sell furniture. You can't keep furniture in there as much as I'm going to sell this furniture. Like, I was all about it. He said, here's the only thing, though. I'm going to have you work 30 days in the warehouse so you get a feel for what those guys have to go through. So when you're out selling shit, you never put these guys in a situation they can't handle. Okay? So I up, leave Office Max, immediately take this job. It's early part of winter. I'm going to start working in this fucking warehouse for a month. A month turns into two months, turns into six months, turns into one year, turns into two years. And I've had enough. And my family, my fucking family, has been lying to me for two years about this job that they're telling me and stringing me along I'm going to get. I was told they were going to make a whole new store for me to run because they had new positions coming up and they needed somebody like me. I was also the guy who was genuinely helping and problem solving as a delivery driver now in this two years' time, being able to solve any problem these fucking idiot salespeople threw at us, and doing everything, and I had a great partner, Nash, and he and I had amazing times together and and created an amazing bond. Uh, He's a friend and a human that I wish I could see more, and he has a whole, he lives in central Illinois. I don't, I'm barely home, so it's hard, you know? Um, So the two-year thing, man, and getting strung along, and like, my aunt and my uncle lying to me, lying to Sarah, lying to my dad, lying to my sisters, lying to my mom, my mom lying to me. Everybody's in on this secret that I'm not ever going to get this job. I'm chasing something that does not exist. And I'm not privy to the game until I'm privy to the game and I lost it. And one day I went into Rich's office and I'm like, I'm fucking sick of it. You're either going to give me the shot at being your sales guy or I'm out the fucking door and I know it doesn't matter to you, but I'm fucking done. And I walked out that day. And he called me and was like, hey, man, I'm so sorry. Like, I know things got heated. We're, we're trying. Like, there, there's more to the story than this. Whatever. We're going to need to talk. And I was like, okay, whatever. Same day that this fucking blow up happens, Sarah hits me up and she goes, hey, David, that's her brother, uh, just said that the Horseshoe Casino is hiring. And he wants you to work there because he thinks you'd love it. And he knows how miserable you are at the factory, or at at, uh, Carter's Furniture. And I said, okay, it's math. It's also two hours away. I'm going to have to change my whole life. I'm not... I don't know if I'm quite ready to do that. Like, I've started to grow roots in my hometown of Hoopston here, like, and and it's my life. 
So I take a long, hard thought about it, and I apply. And they accept me, and they say, okay, you're going to come at this day, and you're going to take a math test. If you pass the math test, you're in. It's a math test and a, essentially a live audition where you do like a fun little like game and show you can entertain people, and then that's it. I go and I do it. I nail the audition. I ace the math test. They give me the job, and my life is ready to change. And I couldn't let it go, man. I could not let the fact that my family had strung me along for two years go, and I verbally attacked them in multiple platforms, whether it was through phone calls or on Facebook or whatever it was, I wanted the world to know these people were real villains, you know? Like, if you can consider yourself family to someone and lie to them like that on such a grandiose scale and have so many different elaborate ways to get out of what you've promised, uh, it almost becomes like an art of deception. And that, man, it, it taught me so much. That's a pivotal me learning that you can trust people, but you also have to trust your instincts when, you know, things aren't right. And I knew I shouldn't have worked for my family. Like, I fucking knew better. But I mean, my what, heart... I mean, what was their justification? Well, there was none, because they... I mean, even to this day, I have no justification. But, like, I mean, off air after this, I'll tell you how the universe kind of karma karmatically paid them back. But for the listeners, just know that while I can sit here and talk about how they wronged me and how at the time it really greatly hurt me, because here I am now, I've had to now move my life. These people were ensuring me that I was going to get a sales job and I could buy my first home and that I could buy my first car and I could do all these things because I was going to be the moneymaker. I was going to be them changing it up. And, uh, you know, they want to say it's politics and all this other stuff. And, and I called bullshit, you know, and, uh, Ultimately, that decision, though, was the best decision in my life. Like, it might have been the hardest, most painful thing I went through with learning a lesson, you know, and mm -hmm. being able to really, like, look back and go, man, you know, if you would have just trusted your fucking guts sooner, you know. But, of course, if I would have trusted my guts sooner, we might not be here. Right. So in the timeline, that's about 2011 when I leave to go to Horseshoe, and it's, like, December 2011 into the new year of 2012. And I remember the first week of January, 2012, I started at horseshoe casino. Like I was on the floor. I was one of the first people out of my class. I worked my ass off. I was in that class for five weeks. It was a 12 week class. I was one of three people that crammed it in five and auditioned and got the job and was making money and doing it, you know, and behind the scenes, man, here's something that not a lot of people know. So David's class, Sarah's brother's class, when he was working at Horseshoe, they paid him. Paid training. Okay, so he was making the same that everybody else on the boat was making every time he was training. It's fat money. Fat money to be sitting in class for four hours a day, right? So my class was the next class, and we were also the first class ever to not get paid to be trained. Mm. So I have no income at this point. And um, I had a little bit of leftover money from vacation and shit from working at Carter's that they had paid me in my last paycheck and whatnot, saved up. And I was like, okay, I got to get six weeks and get through the six weeks and pay my shit and do this and also be okay on the other side to start this job. And I did the fucking dumbest thing, and I don't know why it worked, but it did. 
one of my buddies that I had met at this class just one night after class said, hey, I know they said that they don't encourage it, but since we're not employees, we can do it. Do you want to go into Horseshoe and actually see what it's about? Because I'd never been there. And I was like, oh, my God, you want to go gamble at the place we're going to work at? No. He's like, come on, just like one game. Okay. So we did that like multiple times. We Nobody knew us. No one on the floor was on the in the training facility, you know. And, I mean, sure, they would be checking the cameras, but they're not checking the cameras for people who are in training. They don't care. So we were going in, and, I mean, we were scooping up hundreds of dollars a night once a week for five weeks. And I, and I stayed good, man. I really did. I used gambling to get through. And true story, as soon as I became a dealer, anytime I went to gamble, I fucking lost. It's like as soon as I became a dealer, the universe was like, nope, cut it off. You don't get that shit anymore. You know the secrets. Like, fuck you. Um, but Horseshoe, man, that's a whole, that's a chapter. That's a chapter that's worth kind of opening up because immediately I'm on thirds. I'm working grave shifts. I'm working 9 p.m. to 7 a.m., sometimes 9 p.m. to 11 a.m., depending on how things fell out. Um, it was really hard on my psyche. I was spending so much time alone. I was literally watching Netflix in bed while Sarah slept every night when I came home from work. And then as soon as she got up, it was good night and I would go to bed. And that was literally all I was seeing of her. And slowly but surely the person that at the time I was, the Nate that I was before you even knew me is getting chipped away and there's real darkness brewing and there are real bad decisions I'm starting to make in my life actively because I don't care because I'm ready for the train to fucking end. Mm-hmm. I, the, my psyche had changed genuinely. Like, I don't know how to describe this to people, but humans are not meant to work at night. I, I can't, I know some people might be like, I'll buck up, you fucker. Like, you can do it. But mentally speaking, they don't realize the toll it takes on changing your psyche to sleep while everyone else is awake and be awake. And especially in a job like the casino where I'm watching people lose thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars a night. People losing more money in one hand of blackjack than my entire collective debt today. Okay? And it killed me. It's like, what is the fucking point of life if this is all I'm doing? The band was stopped. I couldn't really do it that much because it was two hours away, so I'm driving every now and again to have a half-assed practice and throw one show together a year, and it was dying. The band was over. I had to come to terms with that, and it was, I was losing it. I really was. Um, at the same time, Sarah and I had gotten really lucky and got kind of swept up into this Ellis Mania thing and Ellis Fam and shit like that. Jason Ellis had a show on, uh, on fucking um, Sirius XM, and... Sarah being a fucking phenomenal piano player covered one of their songs and like got radio coverage. And then like people are coming to me. So I'm like acting as her manager now, which is a new position for me that I've never had before. And then when she did the machine head thing, man, like I don't, again, for those of you who don't know, Sarah played darkness within a machine head song on piano, all the solos included hundred percent note for no accurate. And on a shitty cell phone, I posted it, and it got like 10,000 views in a day. It was the most viral thing I've ever been a part of. But then I had to start being her manager as well. And again, Sarah and I's relationship shift again. And now I'm not just her boyfriend, partner, best friend. I'm manager. I have to help make decisions. Machine Head wants to meet her. I have to call Machine Head's fucking manager and set it up. And then I have to call the tour manager and set it up. And I'm just a fucking dude from Hoopston who's done none of this shit. And I'm 
so a fucking tiny minnow in shark infested waters at this point. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to pretend that I am the great white out there, you know, and just acting like I know what I'm doing, acting like I talk the lingo and shit and being just, and you know what I learned? Here's the most fucked up thing about the whole story of getting into the world of talking to people who are in the industry and who actually do this thing professionally. They're, and you hear this thing all the time. They're just people, but they really just are. You just talk to them normal. You just say what you want and what your intentions are and what you mean, and they understand and interpret it and give you a quick yes or no. There's no bullshit. There's no hidden smoke and mirrors. It might be 10% who you know, but if you're talented, your talent will rise to the top and you're going to be visible, and I think that's something I learned from the whole experience. So we were making friends in the Jason Ellis show and all that while I'm going through my depression, and these people are seeing me indulge in that darker side of myself and um we're we go to vegas for three different years in a row and it's a party environment and you know the first year i'm getting shit-faced drunk and hating things and the second year i'm blowing money that i didn't even have and then the third year we met like a lot of cool really fucking nice people and we're introduced to dabs and I was reintroduced to this glorious thing called cannabis and a more grandiose scale. And, um, you know, to, to really be quite honest, that third trip to Vegas might have saved my life. Um, we had, had been hanging out with our friends, the Cutnose, and, and, and we were, like, cool with them. We met this guy named Shuddy Boy who was on this show called The Mad Scientist Party Hour, which is a podcast, and we have history with them, and they've had shit a part of our journey into comic show and whatnot and shuddy was at one point a host um but one of the nights i was there i got a migraine and was offered some weed just to say it bluntly (laughs) no pun intended i see what you did there i didn't even mean to but um i was offered some smoke and i said sure and i smoked and the migraine melted i physically you want to talk about the? You know how you said you never forget the first migraine you have. I've never physically felt anything like the first time one has melted out of my head mm-hmm. because it's totally unique, right? And uh, and I'm not. I don't want to bust you out or anything. If you have or have not experienced that, is is your own journey. But um, for me, I realized that I don't want to listen. While I was working at Carter's, another part of who I was was taking a lot of Vicodin because me and my partner Nash are two dudes. Just two dudes, and Tyler, cut it real, man. I don't got the biggest fucking muscles, bro. Like, I'm kind of a little dude, to be Mm -hmm. real, okay? Me and my partner, Nash, are about the same size, and we're moving 750-pound fucking curio cabinets that have granite tops. Just he and I, two people. Mm -hmm. And killing ourselves. And my body, to this day, has problems because of Carter's furniture. That was another reason I was so mad with my family because they permanently changed my I fell really bad one time when I was there. We were moving some stuff on the floor and somebody had left something hanging out of an aisle and I didn't see it and it tripped me and I couch fell and almost decapitated me. But my elbow took the brunt of the fucking the fall and I had this humongous fucking gigantic softball in my elbow. I'm walking around all fucking beat to tar and whatnot. And it, I started doing the Vicodin thing, man. Everyone's like, oh, just have a couple of Vicodin. Just take a Vicodin. It's not a big deal. I can get you a couple of Vicodins and a Vicodin. Vicodin. Everybody had Vicodin. It's fucking Vicodin party. Everybody was taking it at that point in the fucking Carter's Furniture. So I'm taking it too. I'm taking two a day, three a day. Then I'm taking two and three at a time sometimes, you know. And sure, it killed the migraines when I got really bad. 
but it was also making me feel not like me anymore. And mm-hmm. so when I started smoking the cannabis again and uh, really going for it, I was like, you know what? This is the way to be. Like, if I can be healthy and feel okay and not die and smoke this, and if I have a migraine, I know it's going to take care of it. That's a smart thing. I don't, mm-hmm. I, my health is, is important. So it's the path I took. Like, I don't really care. If people want to judge me shittily or think negative, I think we're in 2019. I think we're in a progressive enough country to realize that, like, cannabis is helpful, folks. Like, let's be real, you know? The reefer madness is not a real thing. Let's just move on from oh my. 1920s fucking political, socio-political doctrine. No one's got the reefer madness. Never, it, it, no one has ever had a reefer madness. <laughs> the only thing you get is munchy madness. Yeah. Or the, fucking- or the yawns. Fucking Funyun Madness. Funyun Madness. Oh, my God. I love it. I love Funyuns. <laughs> I I, I kind of am in a state where I permanently have Funyun Madness. So if any... Quick quick side note. If anyone uh, stops by LafiCon, uh, an event that Journey into Comics Network is hosting this Saturday and Sunday here in Lafayette, Indiana, you will see me with a bag of Funyuns. And I will not be ashamed of it. Fucking A, Funyun life. <laughs> Funyuns are good, man. They're the bomb.com. I love that uh, onion-flavored corn. I thought you were going to say if anybody came to LaffyCon and brought you Funyuns, they would be your new best friend. Oh, that'd and be I'm cool, too. This, and I'm going to say the same thing, but OG Nestle Butterfingers. Yes! We don't need to go on that tangent to train. We've bitched about it enough. I, Have we? I gave you the line. Yeah, I gave you the line to some goodness, though. I got to yeah. tap on that real good good. And and I'm going to be sending you some cash flow probably tomorrow for that real good good. Oh, that's perfect cuz then I'm going to be able to pick it up probably tomorrow and then I'll be able to bring it to you to Luffy Cone. Yeet. Woot. Uh so um where do you want to go from here, man? I feel like I kind of just spiraled into a lot of shit. I I spiraled into my depression and fucking horseshoe. That was bad. So uh, so at what point do you leave horseshoe? Man, it's a really it's really weird the way fate works and how remember when I said stepping stones and like every process leads to something and and I I truly have been fortunate enough and I wish I was smart enough to write every instance down but there have been 5000 times on the low end that I have experienced something where without question I am in the right place at the right time I was meant to be where I was meant to be when I was meant to be how I was meant to be because it led to the next step which led to the next step I mean I got to perform on stage with the band Death Death Die who was from the Jason Ellis show at the joint in Las Vegas in front of fucking 4,000 people stoned out of my mind it was the craziest fucking experience it was also the last night that band was a band I was on Mm. stage for that like you how the fuck co- does that even happen that. to me? I'm just, I'm just fucking guy, right? But those guys are also who inspired me to podcast. They all had podcasts, and they were starting to do this podcast thing, podcast. And Sarah just looked at me and said, "You could do that. You can talk. You and Brandon talked for hours downstairs in the basement about wrestling. You could do that." And it just started ticking to me. I was like, "Oh, oh, what about that?" And then you guys have probably heard the story before, but like. Josh Richmond from the Jason Ellis show. He left that show. He's doing his own podcast. Josh figures it out. He was trying to figure his life out. 
trying to figure what kind of podcast he wanted to do out. He decided to go the route of having like a show with a bunch of different ideas and concepts to see which one best worked. One of those things was the Incepticast. And I put Journey into Comics, episode one. I sent it to Josh. I was like, hey, man, I don't know if you're even going to enjoy this, but what do you think? And he was like, I fucking love it. Can I interview you? So now, again, I'm just this fucking nobody who is now on a podcast who's got some notoriety on a show or on, from a guy who has a following from a show that's got hundreds of thousands of followers around the globe. What the fuck? This is all happening a little too fast. And, you know, Journey to Comics almost died after that first episode because I needed the board. I didn't have a board to record with. I had to go to my dad's house to do the show at that time. And it was winter, so I can't travel in the winter when the snow's bad, and that was a particularly terrible year, so three months of no podcasting, and I kind of forgot about it almost. And then I went back to my dad's house for the first time, and I saw the board, and I sat down, and I recorded the second episode. And then we started talking, and he gave me access to a different board, and then I recorded the next episodes, and then, you know, here we are. Again, the spark from Sarah telling me, do podcasting, you might be good at it. I really believed in what she said. I really I really did. And I needed, listen, Draxus not being a band anymore at the time traumatized me because I wanted it to be the thing that made me successful. I wanted the first thing I created to be the thing. And now I learn that, you know, that doesn't really work. Sometimes you create a lot of different things, and until you find the right thing, you just, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So I needed an outlet to talk I needed an outlet to get my inner demons out. I was just on the cusp of leaving Horseshoe, and Draxus gets offered a show. So I'm doing the podcasting. We hadn't really had any shows. We get offered a show. We say, yes, we're going to do it. So months in advance, I go to my job at Horseshoe, and I'm like, look, this one specific day, I can't work. We have a show. It's our band's reunion show. We haven't played in over a year. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a good time. Like, I can't miss this for the world. I don't ask a lot from you guys. I don't really have very many points. I know it's Labor or it's Memorial Day weekend and it's a holiday. You're going to want to double point me and all that bullshit. But I need this day off. And they said, cool, we got you. No big deal. So we get the schedule a month in advance. And guess who's on the schedule? Me, baby. Me. And I am not thrilled. And I called the shift supervisor, and I and I chewed her out. I was like, you lied to me. You told me I was not going to be on this. She said, well, it was an oversight. We'll get it taken care of. They just changed my time. They didn't take me off the day. So I'm like, okay, well, I've booked this show. I've hyped this show. It's my band's possibly last show. It's possibly the last time I'm going to be playing music with my father. Fuck it, I quit. And I left. I was done. And that was, and that, was that. You know? That was that. And I went and I played the show and it was beautiful and it was a great thing and it was we our last song was Master of Puppets which was beautifully fitting and um but then I really started diving deep in 2014 into Journey into Comics and Brandon getting a part of that spark you I mean Tyler and everybody else knows that the network as you see here is not built if it wasn't for Brandon doing this so and being a part of it so I have to like extra carve out a spot for him. And he I, he probably even to this day doesn't realize how much I find his importance to this whole thing. 
because he sparked me to really, again, Sarah sparked me to believe in myself a little bit. Brandon sparked me to believe in myself because I felt like we were really good and we could do whatever we wanted to do. And we were setting goals and accomplishing them. We want to do a hundredth episode live. We fucking did it. Like we were on point, you know, that spawns the network and all this shit, you know, but, um, I don't know. Where should we, uh, um, I feel like I'm off on another tangent of, of ramble bambling. No, you're good. Uh, so you've you've left you've left horseshoe. You've um, horseshit. You've you've left horseshit. Uh, so you, we've had horse glue, and now horseshit. And you're 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 later. You're in, gonna get horse force. Maybe or or maybe a horse show. We don't know yet. Uh, we'll see where the journey oh. takes us. But. So you just up and quit horseshoe, um, and and you decide to dive feet first into journey into comics. What was what was Sarah's take on you just quitting? Well, she was obviously nervous and wanted to know what we were going to do for money, and I immediately found another job that sucked two years of my life away and taught me a life lesson, which is part of the fucking experience. Um, so it's crazy how seismic the year 2014 is for me. Draxus ends, Journey into Comics starts, I leave Horseshoe, which leaving Horseshoe is me abandoning pretty much all the friends I have in Northwest Indiana because literally the only people I knew at that time were Sarah's family and people from Horseshoe. That's fucking it, man. I knew no one else, okay? Okay. Man without a country. I met this guy, Anthony, while I worked at Horseshoe, and he's a fucking awesome dude. And he started getting into Journey into Comics and liked the show. And he also loved that Brandon was into games. So he told Brando, hey, man, or he told me to tell Brando, hey, man, I know this girl. She's selling a bunch of classic systems and shit. You guys should pick it up or tell Brandon to get it. So Brandon came up. We made it a weekend. We went to this place, Bombers. We meet this beautiful woman. And, um, man, life again changes. Fucking unexpectedly this person it like walks into my life and here we are again in the universe without me knowing at that time how important that meeting was the universe set in motion events that are we are still riding the fucking roller coaster of baby let me say so this girl walks in her name's veronica she's kind of bummed out she's really dolled up she looks great but she and she's trying to put on a happy face, but she's a little bit stressed. And I'm like, "Hey, what's up?" And she's like, "Oh, my, my dog pissed on my kid's car seat, and my husband was screaming at me and said we had to get rid of our dog. And it just, I love my dog, and we just had this kid, and like everything's overwhelming and all this. And I have to sell all my games because we don't have a lot of money. And 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 it was it was like, holy shit! Like you just dumped a lot on me. We just met, but that's cool because I can take it and I can listen to what you're going through and. Let's just have this fun interaction. So she sells the games to Brando. We eat at Bombers. It's fine. We both go our separate ways. And then Veronica and I start to become friends more and more and more and more and more. And she kind of became a staple in our lives in such a way where it's permanent, man. She's not going anywhere. Like, the three of us are thick as thieves. And um, that decision came with a lot of, I mean, I can't really say too many things, but like we 
have to be better than ourselves and we see that the way things used to be for all of us individually as people weren't working. So the friendship that we all have together is just, it's a bond that is, I mean, we've traveled with Veronica and done amazing different things and met people and had crazy experiences. And then of course, one day, okay, so Sarah and V, they had their own little side journey where they were playing music together in this thing called Diamond and Fang, where they were playing a whole bunch of music, whether it was like The Doors or Pixies or Pink Floyd or just any kind of thing, uh, Postal Service, whatever, um, and they were just playing jams, and they liked it, and it was pretty good, and V could sing really well. She was a classically trained opera singer, and one day I remember Sarah was like, I don't want to do these shitty songs anymore that we're doing. I don't want to play music that I don't really have my heart in. I need something that I really believe in, and I have an idea. And she pitched me the version one of what would become Walk Among Us. Okay. Again, Sarah is the spark. She said, now look, Nate, you played drums for, okay, at this point I was back four years. I was 28, so I'd played guitar for about 12 years at that point. She said, now I know... You know, you're a really good guitar player. You've been playing for a long time, but you're done playing guitar. You're going to learn drums. So early in our story, if you'll recall, in school, I played drums a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. So I kind of had an idea, loose idea. I had dicked around in Draxus. I actually wrote a couple songs on the drums and performed them when we recorded in the studio. So I had a kind of an idea my way around the kit and whatnot. And, uh, man, uh... Getting thrown into that those waters of like you're gonna have to learn an instrument and I and I didn't really know the purpose and you know really when she pitched Walk Among Us it was we're gonna play one show we're gonna do an entire album one show and that's it we won't do anything else we're done okay cool we practiced for an entire year on this concept whole year before we even tried to play live and we weren't even looking to perform live. When our first show fell in our lap. Okay. It's crazy. So V was on Facebook and saw somebody post about the Ataris coming to town and they were looking for opening acts and there was this guy and she told me to message, hey, maybe we could do it. We talked to the band, Rob, Sarah. Okay. They want to do it. We're going to play our first show. We had like eight songs, maybe 10 at that point. So... We reach out to the promoter. I'm like, look, I know this is a really weird thing. And I'm like still trying to figure out how to tell people what we even are because we don't have guitars. So people, you say that and it's like people forget what music is. It can be any instrument. It doesn't matter. You know, and they're like, oh, you know, guitars, why do you survive? Well, okay, pianos can do that too. Anyways, so um, I hit the guy up and he said, sure, we'd love to have you, but you need to sell 30 tickets. At twelve dollars a ticket, okay, <laughs> and you're and you're gonna keep. I think he said like I think it was half of it or under half or something like that. I can't really remember exactly how much we kept, but we sold forty five tickets. We had the biggest draw of that show, even bigger than the Ataris, who played to four people that were not us. We actually had to leave, so the Ataris played to no one. Which whatever, they're the Ataris. They've already had success. Um, But we made money on our first show. We actually sold tickets and gave the venue money. And he said, did you take your money out of this yet? And I said, yep, I did. This is your cut. He was like, holy shit, thank you. 
cool. Boom. Then we get another show, and then another show, and then another show, and here we are. I don't, I don't know if you have questions about Walk Among Us. I feel like we've talked about that a lot, so well, up to you, man. The one, the one thing that I'm, I'm not educated on is, is at what point does Walk Among Us change from version 1.0 to version 2.0 or, or whatever designation you want to give it oh, right okay. now? Sure, sure, sure. So, okay, so first version of the band, Veronica was just singing, Sarah was just playing piano, Rob was drumming, and or Rob, Rob was playing bass, and I was drumming. Mm-hmm. So, and then, of course, we were all trying to harmonize. We were doing Michael Graves' arid, quote-unquote, misfit songs. Those technically on drums are a hell of a lot harder than the Danzig era. So, for me, I'm grateful that I cut my teeth on those songs because it made me a better musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they aren't better songs per se, and maybe the fan groups and all that shit are gonna come out and be like, "You can't be a fucking Graves digger. He's cat shit." There's a lot of hate for him because Michael Graves, politically speaking, is very fucked up. But um, so we cut our teeth on the famous monsters thing. But we were like, I don't know, nine months into this, and we were really getting into like these songs. We were starting to really jam. We could come into a practice and and all of us jam, and V was singing really well, and it was good. It was going smooth. And V's like, maybe I should play ukulele. No, no, that's not going to work. We got to find something. And Sarah's like, what about another piano? And I was like, yeah, and we should put a distortion on that shit, like a fuzz pedal. So, boom, the dirty piano was created, and we tried it at a practice, and we never went back. V loved it. She started to feel more confident, and her vocals got even better after she started playing the keys because she didn't have to worry about just fronting. She mm-hmm. could be doing, she always has something to do when she's on stage, you know what I'm saying? So that's when we shifted there, and then, you know, we played shows for so long, you know, year and a half, almost two years, and then last June, last June, I think, last late June, uh, Rob left, and when he left, we decided we don't want another bass player, we don't really need another bass player, Sarah can be the bass player because she can just play more low end on the piano, mm-hmm. As and I mean, V is also already playing bass notes and the bass lines on her keys just with the distortion, so we could do it, and we've, we'd already played a couple shows as a three-piece anyways, so, you know, and here, and here we are, and I feel like, you know, from June of last year to now, you know, uh, not to like number brag or hype or whatever, but when last June started, we had like 1,500 Facebook likes. As of today, we have 4,500 Facebook likes. So um, apparently Rob leaving made us do something right. I don't know what it was exactly, but, um, you know, it might have a lot to do with the fact that the girls are fucking smoking hot and uh, play these songs every Friday and people love hearing these songs. And every time they check one off the list, people are like, fuck yeah, I was waiting for that one, you know? And it's, it's cool, man. I um, love, I love you know, that. We're the only, I love that you guys do that every Friday because like, I always see it like in the middle of my day when I'm just wanting to like take a couple minutes to just detach from reality and, like, God, I hate social media, but it's it's so, like, you can't escape from it today. Totally. You know, at least where society's at today. So, you know, I'll open my phone, I'll swipe through my news feed, and because I've watched so many of your guys' videos now, it's always towards the top, and it's always, I always stop and take time to listen to it, 
I might not enjoy all the songs, but I like I like seeing Sarah and Veronica be enthusiastic and truly love just that that you know just that little bit of time that it takes to do that video. It's like they're both so passionate about it, and it's it's just them. So they're feeding off of each other, and it's it, you know it, it's really fun for me as a fan of you guys, not just musically, but, you know, as people, it's really fun for me or to, as, as, as that guy to get to watch them do that every Friday. Man, I'll make sure to pass those words on those very kind words. Uh, you know, that thing, it's more of Sarah's story to tell, but her dad really inspired us to do the casual fiend Friday videos. Uh, Sarah was really struggling because we were kind of spinning our tires a little bit. We had had some success on Instagram and got a pretty decent following or whatever, but we just weren't connecting with our audience. We felt like we were just throwing lawn darts at the air and people weren't coming to shows as much as we wanted and stuff. Mm -hmm. And Sarah's dad's like, why don't you just do like a version, like a, like a little bit of a stripped down version with just you and Veronica and like, you know, smile in them and stuff. Cause people like smiling ladies and Literally, that's the only things he said, and they've taken it and ran, you know? Um, mm -hmm. One thing to mention, uh, as far as I know, I, and I'm not trying to, like, braggadociousness, but, like, we're the only tribute to the Misfits that have done all 54 original tracks live. We've played them all live at one time or another, and now the girls are on pace to also have done them all as a Casual Fiend Friday video. Mm -hmm. So... um it's hard. You know, it's funny you say it's like the short amount of time and the quick little video and I'm the behind the scenes guy that like example, the one that's going to go up this week tomorrow uh, for uh, actually today that this episode's dropping this casual fiend Friday in this voice survival podcast. You can listen to a casual fiend Friday if you want. Just go to our page because it's blowing up right now. Um, whatever song they're going to do, I'm not going to spoil it, but like. They did it the day after our last show. We were all dog fucking tired. They did not want to record that video. They were pissed off to to like have to do it, but then they were also paid off once they did it. Like they were mad cuz they were exhausted, but then when the video was over and they like do you want to see it? I'm always like, "Yes, of course I want to be the first person in the world to have seen this video." Like, "Yes." And they played it and I was like, "Holy shit." shit like you guys brought the thunder i thought you weren't feeling it today and sarah was like well eh, i guess i jerry lee lewis inspired me today you know and it's just like it's funny because sometimes it's really it is really a stress and a struggle and being being in this band has been the most rewarding hardest thing i've ever had to experience i mean my two closest friends as best i can say in this band they're females who men prey upon and or at least try to prey upon, uh, which we constantly have to deal with and deflect. There have been crazy situations involving people trying to come upon people when they didn't want it and stuff like that. We don't need to really get into, um, you know, all those dark things though are paid off tenfold in small things like we're driving from a gig after we've killed at the Melody Inn in Indianapolis. And the girls are both in the truck next to me asleep. And they're blissful because we just slayed. And I know that, like, the energy, like, I guess the way I'm saying it is, is, like, 
somebody, who was it? We just did this show this past week, and this guy said to me that there's no three people he's ever met that has the kind of chemistry that we have on stage and off stage. And, you know, on stage, we aren't just playing for the audience. When the three of us gear up and we're in the moments of Walk Among Us and we're in the trenches, we're playing those songs for each other. Mm-hmm. Those songs, more than any person, more than you, more than all of our fans will ever know, those songs specifically mean so much to our private journey that playing them is like therapy. It's 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 different, man. It's really it's hard to describe. It's it's a very special thing that we have that I never would have expected to be doing this. If you would have told me, kid me, who I would be, like, I don't know about all that. Well, I, th- I think, you know, obviously a feeling like that's hard to describe, but you, you kind of hinted at it earlier. You know, you, you, you don't necessarily stop living for yourself, but you start, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. You become a collective unit, and then we instead of I, need to do this to be happy. This makes you happy. This makes her happy. This makes other her happy. And as long as, and and I say it all the time, that the most important thing in life is to do what makes you happy. You know, I've I've had, I've had, and I look at it, you know, I'm not an old guy, you're not an old guy, but I've had, I've had a pretty tumultuous uh, working career, much like yourself. And I've had the privilege of working with people who are either just starting their work or their working career, their professional career, or are restarting their professional career. And I may not be the most knowledgeable guy on a lot of things, and I may not have experienced you know, 70 years of life, but I have an interesting perspective on things. And I take a lot of pride in giving other people that perspective. And, you know, to hype up on, or to hype you guys a little bit more, I I have argued with people for years that I came to a point in my life where I realized that that truly money does not make you happy and you have you have to find what makes you happy and you have to fucking do it and there's not anything else that matters in life other than your health and the people you care about's health you just got to do what fucking makes you happy that's all that matters and i mean i have fought tooth and nail with people that that you know and and i stand by that statement today and then i look at you and veronica and sarah and you guys get to do regularly what makes you happy together, which continues to make you happy. What more yeah. can you ask? What more can you ask for? Um, if we're being honest, can we ask for a slightly less shithead of a child? <clears throat> well, he's five, man. He it, he it's it's rough right now. I'm just being real. He's got an attitude. It's it's. The old soul in me wants to curb that attitude how you think he should get hit that attitude curbed, mm-hmm. but I'm not allowed to be that person, so I well, have to check that 
emotion. <laughs> not a, not everybody responds to that either. But you know, my daughter's no, almost my daughter's almost three, going on thirty. So I'm not far behind you. <clears throat> well, I mean, and and to be honest, like to get into this for a fucking second, like <clears throat> I've been in Ollie's life actively as a parental figure of sorts since he was a year and a month old. Mm-hmm. Okay. And not, and not like directly, but uh, I'm just one of those natural pick up the fucking slack and do the thing that needs to be done humans when I'm in a situation. So, um, when he was younger, some of the shit he did, um, he would get a little tap on the bottom and, 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 and that lesson learned type thing, but he hasn't been like spanked at all in the past two years, I think. And well, aside from when V does it and when she does it, he is really, really fucked up. So, well, I think, I think we need to take, not necessarily just you and I, but I think we as a society need to, need to kind of grow up and make the distinction that, there is a difference between slight physical motivation to not continue to make poor choices and child abuse. If I am oh, regu- easy. if if I am regularly beating my daughter's ass with a belt or with an extension cord or with I you know I was raised by my grandparents, so I had to go get switch. my own I had to get my own switch. I know what that God feels damn like. Right, bro. But Never looking back, you know, this show is all about looking back on your or or telling your life's journey. Never once do I look back at at any of the discipline I got and think, man, that really fucked me up. Now, statistically and scientifically, you know, there might be some underlying effects there, but I was never abused as a kid physically. No, me neither, man. I mean, like, and like, and I, uh, one thing to say about the discipline thing, you know, f- sometimes my dad used a belt if I did something really stupid. I mean, here to to cut, I'll tell you a fucking the realest story right now. I've never, I've, I don't even think Sarah knows the story. Nobody. So, <clears throat> I was in third grade, and this is right, like I said, summer, the second summer after my parents had officially divorced. So my Mom is just getting ready to or has just married my stepdad. And um, I had an obsession with collecting basketball cards. Okay. I also did not have a job because I was a kid. I also was very crafty and always listened to what my family was saying and remembered that my grandparents never locked their house. I also remember that my grandparents' son, my uncle, had... All these fucking extra cards that I wanted, and extras and extras and extras of extras, and so many extras, how could he even know, right? And then I got greedy. I straight up was stealing basketball cards from my uncle for like a couple months until I got busted, and I got a belt to the ass, man. I learned my lesson, and guess what? I never did again. You didn't steal base or basketball cards. Or anything like that, for that matter, or anything for that matter, because I did not want my ass beat, mm-hmm. right? So it was a lesson. It was a le- but you know, on the flip side, if I did something stupid that pissed my dad off, like not listening consistently for an hour, and he tries to get me to brush my teeth, and I keep shaking him and shit, you know what the worst punishment was? More than the belt was silent treatment. Go stand in that corner. 
nose to the corner. Go stand in that corner. You'll be done standing in that corner when I tell you. Gives you time to have perspective. Why wasn't I listening? Why the fuck did I end up in this corner? <laughs> Shit. It, put, it puts your mind in the prison. Like Yes, it does. Like, fuck, what a... What am I going to do? I'm stuck here. I could be here for days. Yeah, of course, it was only like 15 minutes, but it feels like an eternity for a kid, so it right. was torture. It really was, but again, you know, and I tell my dad this to this day. I, t- I mean, I probably will talk about it at some point later, how I referenced it now, but like, I'm grateful for how he raised me, man. Mm-hmm. I would not be the man I am today, and I feel like I'm a man with a lot of self-preservation and integrity like i learned a lot of who i am from him because he just didn't he didn't have a quit in him he didn't know quit he didn't give up or stop ever and didn't want to like and i mean i admire that and like i said and how he raised me to learn lessons and you know I saw really gentle sides of my dad a, a lot of times too behind the scenes and in different situations as well that gave me perspective. So, um, yeah, I'm grateful for how I was raised in that regard. So I, I think that brings up, I mean, that's, that's a perfect segue. You know, you brought up Ollie, you brought up how you were raised. How has, how has Ollie becoming a part of your life affected you like how has having to fill a parental role affected nate man that is a amazing okay so and, first and I, of all and i say ahead. that i say that under the realm that i'm a strong believer of blood doesn't make you family bingo because and you know you and i have talked about that at length Privately, loyalty, um, loyalty makes you family. Yes, blood makes you related. Yep. So there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of instances in all of our lives where we can look at people and say that that's my family, or or they do something for you, and just subconsciously in your mind you think that's what family does for each other and for someone that is you know eventually going to be our age you know yeah. trying to figure their lives out having a podcast and hopefully taking this network over well possibly i mean i i think that's a reasonable a reasonable expectation to set but like i commend I, every time that we've talked about Ollie or, you know, Veronica and Skylar and I have talked about Ollie, I get a lot of satisfaction because you are consistently a part of this young boy's life and you are being a positive influence. And, you know, statistically, those are few and far between in today's society. So let's get to the nitty gritty of the Ollie and Nate party. Okay, so I want to say one thing that um, that you lead by example, and that's something my dad taught me, is just to be, like, uh, I guess it's hard, too. I do have a lot of my dad in me, and there are times when I get shitty with Ollie or kind of sass him back 
when he's being extra, especially now he's so extra lippy because he's so fucking smart. He just knows too much. He knows too much and he thinks he knows too much, you know? And um, so I, I've had to learn to be incredibly patient. That's That's been a thing. But like with Oliver, he is a sponge. And he is, if you will sit down and explain something to him, he'll never forget it. If you take the time to make him understand he will soak it in. Like we have very good, de- and this is a part of some of the strife with parenting him is that when Veronica's around, he has a different demeanor than when it's just he and I. Mm-hmm. When Veronica's around, he almost reverts back to the baby me thing. And if I do this to Nate, I can just run to mom and she's going to protect me because she, she does. But, um, you know, because she is teaching me to not let him get a reaction out of me, which is what I'm doing so much better at recently. Um, But like, he just, he knows how to play the game. And um, I, you know, when he and I are like, okay, for example, Monday, he was, I was over at their house and Sarah and I and he and V were all hanging out and he just got home from his dad's over the weekend, over Easter weekend. And I didn't even say anything to him because sometimes if you tell him there's a plan, it makes the plan harder. Sometimes you just have to start doing the thing and then he'll catch on that a thing is happening and join in. So I started building a fire. I fucking love doing that. And it was so nice out and there's they live by the lake. So I'm like, I'm just going to build a big ass fire. There was a lot of shit that had fallen from the from the winds and stuff over the weekend. So we just gathered up as much of the shit in the yard as we could, built this dope ass fire. And V and Sarah went to the store and got a bunch of food and shit for us to have for dinner and whatnot. Ollie and I sat around, built the fire. I taught him life lessons, showed him how to do the shit, man. And it was like, beautiful. There's there's no other joy I've known like that. Mm -hmm. Like, and you know that as an actual dad. I don't actually have blood in that kid. Like, he is not my kid, but he might as well be. Because he is so much like me in his attitude and how he responds to things and his intel- and his ability to really get it but you know the thing that I'm so excited for with Ollie's growth and development uh coming up is that he's super musically inclined and he wants it. Hell yeah. He sits at the pian- he sits at the piano and noodles for 30 minutes a day and he's 5. And he makes some pretty okay sounding stuff for a 5-year-old. Right. Notice I was not the overzealous dad saying, he made the greatest song in the world. He's the next Mozart. Like, it's not that. Uh, with a little bit of training from a particular pianist that I know, um, he might be the next Mozart, honestly. Um, but I, I, he's going to have to come into his own. Uh, no, Ollie, Ollie is a really incredibly intelligent, gifted kid who has just been dealt a really unfortunate hand of having kind of a shitty dad. And I had a kind of shitty mom, and I think I, that's one thing I really sympathize with him about. Um, and another thing that's really fucking weird in the parallel to Oliver and I is that his dad and grandmother and grandfather are using him as a pawn how I was used, and we know it. Like, mm-hmm. And Ollie has, Ollie's, Ollie's privy to it. He just straight up said, he's like, Dad was in there talking about you guys, you know? And I'm just like, oh, man, like that's you're a kid and you know that that's not it's not gonna look good in the long run you know and, and I, I just want to tell Ollie like look he's still your dad 
you don't have to like him, but you gotta, or you don't, I don't, what's, how's that saying go? You don't gotta like him, but you gotta love him or some shit, you know, or you don't gotta love him, but you gotta like him. I don't know how the fuck it goes, but I just, uh, I feel for him and I try to always give him, um, better experiences than I had growing up too, you know, and it's in the little things. It's, it's in the being ever present. It's not in the showering him with gifts and spending crazy amounts of money, the it's in the little stuff, man. And it, it's, you know, and it's leading by example. You know, what's really cool is he treats wh- when he's being genuine and he's not having an attitude fit like he has. Cause he's five and he's being genuine. He treats people with so much respect. He, he seems like a little adult. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Mommy. Can I please? Okay. Honey. Like he uses honey. Cause he hears me call the girl, you honey. And you know, so like, um, he he just that kid that kid has definitely impacted me man because it's reflect it's made me reflect on my journey uh kind of like we're doing here today um but then also it's it's forced me to be better than my my parents before me you know so so this is this is totally relevant on on more than one um you know kind of kind of stream here how, however I would however I should phrase it I can't right now cuz we're doing a podcast sure but, sure but, it happens but a very uh notable blue character from from a franchise that we really love in the last couple of years said he may have been your father boy but he wasn't your daddy and that is one of my not only my favorite scenes from all oh, of yeah. modern cinema but it it just reaffirms everything that you and I have both just said. Surround yourself with the people that you want to surround yourself with. Recognize the people that are your family, but give and you you don't like you said with with Ollie and you know affection. You're not buying him all the. I mean. It's sad that I got a tangent a little bit, but it's sad that in, do. in today's society, we the expectation is that you live so far beyond your means to basically make everyone else around you think of you a certain way. But we do it with parents and children and family and everything, just because. Just because someone's your father doesn't mean that they've given you the life lessons and they've been they've been with you or they've been there for you when you needed them. And, you know, you brought up Ollie has taught you, Ollie and Veronica have taught you to be more patient, and that's, being a parent myself, that's one of the things that, you know, I didn't get easy. You know, it took... It took a while before I realized, like, man, she's just a kid. I gotta, I gotta be can't patient. Can't blowing your cool, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I can't just stomp my feet and you know shake my fist in the air and, and expect a child to, you know, conform to your will. I mean, they're they're people too. They're not just an object. And and obviously, I didn't think of of children as an object, but there are people I know out what you're there. Saying, though. There are people out there that think of their children as pawns, as an object in a game that they're playing, and it's it's sad. It really is sad. 
Uh, so I was going to say you're talking, oh, damn it. I had a point in what you just said there. Okay, so you said, you know, that the thing about buying Ollie's affection, and I'm not a, I'm not a fan of that because my mom's side of the family did that. They try to buy my affection, buy my love, here's gifts, here's that, here's that, but they're not present, then they actively, you know, deceived me, and, and, we, and I learned my lesson. But with Ollie, I do things that are, like, more to the heart. Like, for example... I wanted to get him some Ninja Turtle stuff. I didn't really want to spend the money on modern Ninja Turtle stuff because it's not that fucking cool. It's but pretty I had some lame, pretty dope actually. Ninja Turtles. Let's just be honest. It is. But I had actually bought the 2004 reboot Ninja Turtle toys that came out. They did like a new animated series that was pretty good. And I had the entire collection, and I just found it when I was at my dad's like two years ago. So I grabbed them all up. And I gave them to Ollie one by one. Here was a new Ninja Turtle. Here's your Donatello complete with all the fucking gear. All the shit you would want to have. Here's your Splinter with the fucking ooze. Like, I did it up, man. And it meant more to him than the fucking shit he gets for Christmas that I look in his room that still isn't getting used. It's a fucking mess. It's a mess. Kids make messes. But, you know, patience, to get back to that too, is like... um. One thing that's really helped me is, and our parents didn't have this, you know, I think the internet is an amazing tool because Veronica will be like, hey, you need to read this article and she'll send me an article and it'll be about like, this is how a child's brain is developing at age five and this is the things they do and don't have and empathy is not necessarily one of those things. It doesn't develop till they're about six and a half or seven. And I'm like, oh, now I fucking get why he doesn't respond to hurting my feelings because he doesn't know what he's even doing. He's just throwing words. So then it starts to take the sting out of it. So that's been educational. My time with Oliver in my life these past four going on five years has been extremely educational. When it's got to be, I mean, it's got to be rewarding. I mean, it's, it's, it's got to... I left. I left a, a, a very lucrative career situation so I could spend more time with my child. And there's a lot of people out there that don't have the ability to do that. So, from from watching Ruby grow up on my on my cell phone to being able to spend time with her, being able to give baths and put her to bed and and make her dinner and all that, like you get to do all that. So the amount the amount that I feel that I'm rewarded for being able to do that, you have you have to you have to be cognizant of that as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's and it's cool too to just be like um, making dinner is a mundane thing, but making dinner for the family is not a mundane thing. It's a fucking cool experience that I get to. Like, I'm making mashed potatoes, and I'm looking at my life going, holy fuck, how did I get so lucky to even be here, you know? Right. Uh, it's 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 pretty wild. It's really, sometimes it gets overwhelming to think about it, because uh, to go back in the journey, I'm just a kid from this small fucking town who didn't do anything to deserve any of this, you know? Yeah. Huh. That's weird to think about, you know? I don't I don't like to look at it that way because growing up in a military family and then, you know, the school of hard knocks like you had as a kid, I had a pretty pretty similar upbringing. Um, you know, my dad always told me 
when you walk into the room, kick the door down and own it, you know? And yeah. and there's a a philosopher or like a like a self-help guru. I don't really know how how he labels himself as. But he has like this mantra that that he that he preaches like every day every day when you wake up you look in the mirror and you say today's going to be a good day and then you pick something about your your day-to-day life and then you modify a phrase for it so my job is the best job in the world and there's no job I would rather have because and you pick something uber positive about whatever you want and then you repeat that self to, you repeat that to yourself every day and then and then that positivity becomes a part of your life and i don't think that you have to you have to go all new age self help with any of this stuff i think that that you know through all of our trials and tribulations and the journey that we take you have to you have to roll with the punches you know as as corny as that is and find the positivity and and grow. I mean, life's about growth, would you agree? Oh, absolutely, man. You have to like grow and evolve and like it's weird because as as okay, I just turned 32. Spoiler alert, I just had a birthday. And um at this point, I feel like something that I was told when I was younger that I thought was really stupid is really true. And it's every seven years you die and are born again. Mm-hmm. I can believe that. So every seven years is a cycle of life, and every seventh year you change. And I look back at 28-year-old me. That was my last full seventh year cycle. I'm not 28-year-old me. That was in 2014, dude. That guy, earlier in the story I told you, he was. it was dark. It was bad. I didn't want to I, – I was destructive in every front of my life and did not care. And uh, I am fucking so grateful I got out unscathed and didn't harm anybody or myself at, at any of those levels. Um, but, you know, every seven years. So now I'm in like kind of in the what you would call the twilight of this next seven years. I'm starting to look at this most recent thing and, and what can I improve and change and I've really started to hone in on getting rid of this thing I have that you've never seen me angry, like angry, angry, mm-hmm. like really fucking ready to rage. And when it comes out, it's really ugly. I don't like it. It after the fact makes me genuinely feel like a gross person. And that's what I'm recognizing is something that needs to change in my next cycle. So, um, growth, like you said, it's, it's a, it's a must, but it's, it's, I think more than growth, it's having the wherewithal that you need to grow. Absolutely. It's even it's even being okay with saying, man, you know what? Like I I have pretty strong political beliefs, but this one's I'm not I'm just this is riffing, obviously, but this this like one specific thing I believe, I was fucking wrong. And I probably need to rethink my and reevaluate my fucking viewpoints. It's okay to do that. Mm-hmm. It's not like okay, I did the the podcast with Christian James Hand a few Voice of Survivals ago, and his his thing on music about how people 
who think that they only listen to one kind of music are cool. Like, oh yeah, well, I only listen to fucking metal, man. Like, you're depriving yourself of all these other possible joys. Like, it makes sense if you don't like one genre. For example, I don't really like country. Country music reminds me of my parents' divorce. They both actively listened to country music during that time. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear it. And it was in the heyday of good country, like Garth Brooks and George Strait and fucking Alan Jackson and Reba and all those fucking motherfuckers, man. Like, in the in the Brooks and Dunn, Jesus, you know, like, in the golden era of, of country music, as it were. Um, and I hate it because it makes me think of them and all the darkness that I used to live. You know, and I want, I you know, I don't know. I just, I, I, um, I can't wait for whatever is coming next, man. Like whatever's a part of the next part of the journey. Like twenty, like the past couple years have been rough. It's been really hard. Um, I so right before the band started this takeoff thing that we did, because we had been playing for a year, mm-hmm. practicing. I was working for this place, Honey Baked Ham, and uh, I loved that job. And that's weird because it's food industry, but I was at that point like really wanting to be like a chef. It was one of the things – it's still one of the things I love doing is cooking for people. And I want to like always like, you want me to cook for you? Want me to cook for you? Can I cook for you? Can I cook you something? Because I want to impress you with my food and I want you to taste it, you know? Um so I was working there, and we had just got done with a holiday season, and then they said, oh, you were only holiday help, and let me go. And I was at a crossroads, and I said, okay, I can go work for the man again, or I can figure this shit out and make money doing something else. And for the first year and a half of the band after I lost Honey Baked Job, I sold pop, all my pops, all the pops that were high in value that I had saved up over the years, a little bit of a nest egg. They weren't my comics. My comics are worth tenfold what I sold in Pops. But, hey, I did the pop hustle. I made a nice amount of money. I got to do what I wanted and set myself right and figure out what I wanted to do. I realized I still like the casino industry. I don't like casinos, though. So I'm, like, kind of at a loss. We're at this party for Veronica's sister. And this lady is talking to Sarah. And she's like, yeah, I work this private casino thing where you pick the days you want to work and all this blah, blah. And she was like, wait, what? Did you just describe Nate's literal perfect job? So she told me about it. And I've been doing that ever since, man. Any chance I get when we're not doing shows, I'm I'm doing that. The really nice thing that I've been fortunate enough to, to be a part of is that the shows we've been doing lately have been doing really well money-wise. We've been making money as a band. And that... <clears throat> keeps justifying what we're doing and and actually pushing for the dream like it's terrifying to not have a real nine to five day-to-day boss guy thing but it's also so nice to know that any day that I want to work I can go make some extra cash anytime that I'm not having shows I can buckle down and get extra 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 funds in you know And see, I'm of the mind that the money's not even about me, so I just filter it to the bank accounts. Put it in there. Do the thing. You guys operate the life. Don't let me have the money because I'll make us broke. Like, that's not a lie. That's that's not – I'm too – I want too many cool things, man, so Mm -hmm. I have to just act like I'm poor all the time. It just makes things easier. So, Um, But, like – 
having the opportunity to do that and then having the success that the band has had and have it work out how it has worked out to this point where we can book shows and get guarantees and draw fucking, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, I've played a lot of cities, but I've played to two people. It's another thing to say you've packed venues in multiple cities. Like, that's a cool fucking experience. I don't care who you are, if you're into music or not, to know that somebody can do that. Like, it's it's special, you know? Mm-hmm. And I get it. We're unique, and that's why people want to know, like, how do they do it? And then that the mystique is over after that. But then we get repeat customers, and that's what that that's like the mystery of it that I still can't figure out is what do we do that make people want to consistently come back to our music? Mm-hmm. What? Are you getting I a said, phone call? No. Hold on. Oh. Huh. <laughs> oh shit. Um Okay. So we're going to have to edit that. I'll have to text her right now. Sorry for this quick delay, folks. We'll probably cut this shit out. <laughs> At least it's easy. There's just the pause there. Okay. I didn't realize so we're that at, I had this page up. We're at two hours and 42 minutes. Sure. Where do you want to go next, or do you want to wrap it up? Man, uh, I feel like I've talked a lot about a lot about kind of all the things, you know. Um, I do want to mention one thing that I never got back to that's interesting to note. It's just a tiny thing in regard to uh, earlier in the story we were talking about fires, right? Mm-hmm. There was a third Hoopston fire that I experienced, and I haven't okay. talked about it yet. So, after I moved out of Hoopston, uh, oh man, okay, that leads me to two things. So, after I moved away from Hoopston to do the thing and and start my new life up there, and I've been there for seven years now, which is crazy. A whole cycle, as it were. Um, So, when I moved, they started putting a new tire factory in Hoopston that was recycling rubber tires, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. So they just, like, I would, every time I would come home to visit, I would just look at that factory and I would just be like, man, they're not really safe. Like, they just have all these tires everywhere. What if one caught fire one day? Like, they wouldn't stop it. It couldn't, there's nothing you can do to put out that kind of fire if this thing catches. So one day I'm at home. It's 7.45 in the morning and my dad calls me and I thought somebody in my family died and he said, hey, good morning. I said, what happened? What's up? He goes, you'll never believe it. The tire place is on fire. <laughs> what? And dude, it burnt for fucking, it burnt for four months. And it fucked this town up. There was damage everywhere. And the smoke was huge. We have pictures of it that are incredible. My dad was taking pictures of it. And I was home the next day to see like the, them still fighting it and the devastation. It was it was insane. It was another one of those situations where I'll, I'll never forget the imagery of those of the of the fire and the smoke and just walking around all that. You light some tires on fire and it's serious business, dude. I'm telling you, it is not a joke. It is not a fucking joke. So, um, you know, uh, another thing I wanted to mention is 
so dad got sick kind of, and I don't mean sick kind of like he doesn't have an illness, uh, more that he has spinal degradation and stenosis. So his back is literally fusing into itself while also crumbling. Mm-hmm. How awesome. Uh, with, he he tells me that in February, right after I lost my job at Honey Baked Ham, and okay, so this is a new stress on me. My dad's possibly he he the way he breaks it down to me, he said the doctors told him realistically he had six months and he might be in a wheelchair because they didn't know how rapid or how how much worse it could get. Mm-hmm. Of course, now he's several he's several years out. He's not yet needed even a cane, so he's. He's fought it. He's done a lot to keep up on it, you know, and, and he didn't want to go down without no fight. So um, with all that happening, though, like two months after that, he gets a notice from his insurance. Says, hey, you need to side your entire house or we're going to drop your insurance on your house. So now because my dad had let the house kind of go to hell, he hadn't painted it in like 20 years and all the paint had chipped off and it was kind of... Kind of looked a little beat up. It looked a little tattered. We're not going to pretend it didn't look like shit because it did. It wasn't pretty. So he's like, I can't afford to have it sighted. I don't want to pay somebody to do it. I don't know what to do. I'm not going to pay somebody to paint it. And I said, fuck it. I, I don't have a job anymore, really. Like, I'm selling these pops. We've got the band. I'll come down any day you fucking need me and we'll fucking do this house ourselves. And for two years we did. And we did this entire fucking house ourselves. Rebuilt the porch. We fucking sanded off every piece of old paint that this house had and got it back to the original 1902 wood to paint. And I fucking got to pick the color. And it was another fucking awesome bonding experience with me and my dad, man. There was so much learned, and I got so much life experience on how to do things to a house and how to make it look really great and sharp and and not cut corners. And, I mean, it was, it was grueling. It was a really genuinely a learning experience across the board. Yeah, those moments are really, really important, you know, just, just in general. It doesn't necessarily have to be with your mom or your dad or, or whoever. Just those experiences when, when you basically have a task that, that you would think is unachievable and, you know, to kind of quote you from earlier, you, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you get it done, you know, and, and to experience that with, with your dad, I mean... those moments are are precious well and you know the thing that fucking got me about this too tyler is that modern technology i had my cell phone on me during the whole thing so we like chronicled and you can see it on my facebook page there's a house phillips fucking folder it's a hundred and some odd pictures and it's the whole process everything we did as best as i could as best as i could capture it in the moment some days were grueling as fuck, and the pictures do not do the damn fucking day any justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was one day we started working at 6 a.m. and didn't stop until 6 p.m., and at, at fucking 5 o'clock, I said, Dad, we're done. We haven't eaten all day. We're going to die. And he said, okay, we're done, and we still fucking worked for another hour after he called it. Like, it was intense, man. And it, like I said, it, it again, it made me appreciate life and being in the moment and it not being, you know, 
money is good. Money gets you things. Money allows you to do things. But money is not happiness. Mm -hmm. It cannot be happiness because if you hinge your life on money being what makes you happy, your happiness will always wax and wane and you will never be a truly happy person. If you can find what makes you happy around you, let the money come and go. Let the good and the bad come and go. As long as you're surrounded with the people you love, you know happiness is around the corner. They'll comfort you to make you feel better. They'll put you in a position to succeed. Like that, that's that literally those are the ways I live, man. That that's fact. You gotta dig it. I mean oh, yeah, I do, man. I, I can't I mean you can you can go like and it's it's frustrating for me, somebody that was so, you know, nihilistic and pessimistic, and you know, I I always hyped myself up as a realist for so many years about positivity and appreciating trials and tribulations and and, and growth, and you know, it makes it even more cheesy now that that I'm that asshole guy that that got a taste of like. Man, I was fucking wrong the whole time. Now I'm gonna preach it. I'm gonna put some respect on it. Yes, and that, and you know what? I'm glad you said that too because that's been one of the things that um, I think you need more people to learn that trait. Mm-hmm. Being humble, being able to put your pride down and say, "Hey, I fucked up in a big way." Mm-hmm. Like. Like I said, man, my life has been filled with mistakes. I'm not going to bring them to the table here because they're mistakes that I I live with every day. You know, I I don't really necessarily need the reminders. Um, But the mistakes have allowed me to not be that person now. It's allowed me to better myself as an adult, Um, giving perspective, giving me ability to... Listen, it's not easy to grow things in the universe now in the social media era. While it, you would think it would be easy, it also can be they put all these roadblocks in your way. You you know best. So um, I think everything I've done, all my failures, all my lessons, the fucking fallout that we had with the network last year and shit, like every fucking little thing that has happened in my journey has been to teach me stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's a really lame ass way to say it, but really it has been to teach me like, okay, let's just be real. Brandon leaving the network was devastating to me. I don't think I ever let on how devastating to any of you when it happened. The girls knew. They knew how fucked up I was about it. They also saw how genuinely I how genuinely upset I was and understood why I was upset at the situation that led to Brandon leaving, okay? Mm-hmm. So they got to see kind of the whole thing, and I didn't really let you guys know it, but Brandon leaving taught me that no matter what happens, we are all creators, and we can do this. And if we have a show, like, example, I'm not wishing this upon anything, but fucking something happens, and Dick can't ever do podcastrophy again. And now Thursday, which has never been open on our network, is open. I'm not ever going to stress. I'm just going to be like, all right, cool. We'll figure it out. When that Thursday comes, I'll have something ready before then. Mm-hmm. Be prepared. Be ready. Like 
Brandon leaving taught me to just be okay with being on my feet and thinking on my feet and trusting the choices that have to be made, man. Of course, I'm lucky too because the team that we've all built together and the people that we sort of surrounded ourselves with are so fucking good that I can just a lot of times ask you guys, like, what do you think about this shit, man? Is this a good idea? And the first responses are the honest responses. I usually know AP is going to be the one human to find, like, some weird loophole flawed question and, like, the that makes me think of something I never would have considered. And I'm like, God damn it, you motherfucker. He's the analyzer for sure. <clears throat> oh, man, on, on, a, on a real level. And I think that, you know, you and Dick are very supportive in knowing that I think that if I put my mind to a vision or an idea, I have you guys trust that I'm able to actually execute the plan. I'm not going to leave you hanging, as it were. Mm-hmm. When I think, I think what really works for us as a network is we're all true to nature creators, and I mean by the definition, we are all every day in some aspect creating something. Um, even if it's just concept, you know, just strictly like shower thoughts, concepts, every one of us, every one of us from, you know, your show all the way down to the newest shows on the network, every host and co-host and team, you know, mini team inside our overarching team, we're all creators and we all want each other to succeed as much as we want ourselves to succeed. And it makes it, you know, when I was brought, kind of brought into the fold, I had, you know, at first a, a pretty standoffish outlook on it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hang out and I'm going to drink some beer and I'll get to know these people and I get to talk because I like to talk a lot. So, you know. Cool, and, uh, the end. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I'll do this as long as it's fun. And when it stops being fun, I'm not going to do it anymore. You know, it was, it was as casual as it could be. And then, you know, between you and Brandon and, and Blaine, and then, you know, Nick got involved shortly after that, and AP and I started to become friends, and it, it just, it very quickly became this team, and not just a bunch of people. It, it wasn't just a ragtag group of people trying to become podcast famous. And I, I think at this point, all of us would like like for that to happen, but we are so passionate about what we do on a week to week basis and and you know I'm I'm the perfect example I'm on a hiatus right now for my own show um you know we are flexible enough and understanding enough real life from the perspective of real life that we can say take the time that you need or we will implement or change this to cater, not necessarily cater or coddle, but so we as a group continue, can continue to be successful. And I think in industry, that's rare. I think in life, that is rare that you can have this many people involved in something and collectively maintain success and continue collectively to gain more and more success. And it's just, you know, as standoffish as I was from the get-go... <clears throat> You know, other than the 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 little bit of drama that we've had, I, I mean, why why would why would anyone not want to be a part of of the team that we have? 
I mean, I think that uh, I, I, I will say I have a low tolerance for bullshit. And I think that if you can put up with that from me and just me and my weird quirks that you easily fit into the cog that is the JIC wheel. And it's funny because I remember back when you first started and in the early days, and I think like you had only been podcasting a few months and we had that team meeting, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and like, I think you started to really come out of your shell and realize like, I guess my vision has never been about me once the network started. Because my thought is, like, I don't give a fuck what I personally put out. Like, if my podcasts are getting noticed, cool. That's amazing. I'm glad people listen. I'm glad they're entertained by what I'm saying. But I want to see people like you and AP and Chris Plant and fucking and, and Nick Maxson, like you said, and, and Dave Linder and all these guys. I want to see them find a different voice that they didn't even realize they had because they have it. And it all starts from stupid little shit, man. I knew Nick Maxson was going to be a phenomenal podcaster when he jumped on an episode of JIC at LaFiCon the first year we hosted. And I was like, that was awesome. That worked. That guy would be really good. And then I heard him on Podcastrophy, and I was 100%. I looked at Sarah, and I said, that guy has to have his own show. And I immediately messaged him and said, hey, man, I'm doing this network thing. What do you think? Boom. You know, so I just see people who have this ability, and I want... Every, like, I've been doing podcasting long enough that I can tell you, hey, you can start a show and I can help you run it and you don't have to pay for your hosting and you don't have to do any of these other things. And how much stress is that off your shoulders to just be able to go in and talk? Oh, it's a ton. Right? It's a, it's a ton. I mean, obviously, you have to have the equipment to do it, but if you, if you have someone basically filling that management role behind the scenes, like... Just put forth good material. It, it it doesn't even necessarily have to be good material. It's just put forth the material that you want to put forth. It's as simple Absolutely, as that. Absolutely, man. And just be true to yourself when you're podcasting, because that's all I ever did when I did JIC, man. I just talk about things I really believe I want to talk about and believe in. And if I set a show idea up, it's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to fucking back down from it. Like, example... For LaFiCon this weekend, people are going to be going out to LaFiCon this weekend. For those of you who are listening on release day, Saturday and Sunday, LaFiCon in Lafayette, Indiana, right? But um, the JIC we do is going to be like probably a giant quiz on the MCU. Asking a lot of around and different questions and almost doing Jeopardy style points or some shit. I haven't officially finished my plan, but I'm like almost there, you know? And it's like... On the fly, because I had yesterday made the schedule and I had to make a change on what we were going to be able to talk about. So now I'm on the fly, being fly. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I went there. I have no idea what that where that came from. Sorry. It's all right. That's a weird Nate tangent. Just we're happens at, well, to my brain. We're at the three-hour mark now. So Yeah, we did it. We are going to get tangenty real sure. fast. Sure. Um. Nah, man, ultimately, though, my journey and the voice of survival, the reason I feel I am a voice for survival is I, uh, I've i seen life be really shitty in a lot of different fronts. You guys have heard a lot of the shit that I've been through today. Like, maybe I shouldn't have been fucking 
PTSD in y'all with my fucking bad drama and my my baggage and whatnot. But um, I don't I don't want to I don't want my journey to be defined on my shortcomings and the things bad that happened to me because I was that person for a time that wanted to glorify not glorify I guess that's a bad word but I wanted to be constantly reminded of the things that have hurt. And that it caused me pain. And now in my formative years, I want to be grateful for all the things that make me happy. Reflect on all the moments that I've been awarded just by chance. Um, It's not often that I can say that for some people listening tonight, it's like 99% sure I'm playing a sellout show in Chicago, in the city of Chicago. And I'm sitting in my kid bedroom right now, which the Draxus wall, you can see it's behind me. That's the old band logo and a lot of our sets from the old day. Um, But if I could go back and tell that kid that he'd be selling a show out in the city of Chicago, that's ultimate validation, man. It just like it that that overwhelms me, I think, more than anything that I've experienced in this world is that. The person I wanted to become, I found a way to become, and I also found a way to not be the person that was preventing me from becoming who I am. If that adds up, well, and I, I think you have to you have to add a little bit to that. You found a way to take the person that you were, the person that you are, and the person that you want to be, and make each one of those iterations of yourself better than it would have been if you had just thrown a dart on the wall and said, that's the person I want to be and I'm going to throw another dart and it's going to land right next to it and that's going to validate me. You, Anyone that is successful or recognizes their success in, in whatever way they want to justify it, they have to recognize that you have to set a goal, attain that goal, or attain past that goal. You should you should strive to be better than what you ever wanted to be every day. And I think that from this episode, listening to your journey, having the privilege to hear the journey and be a part of it. It's a weird one. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's not a weird. I mean, it's. <laughs> It's real life, and and I, I think that's part of the reason why I enjoy listening to this show so much. It's because regardless of who's on the other mic opposite you or myself or whoever is doing the show, it doesn't matter. It allows, it allows myself as the listener to kind of detach from reality a little bit and recognize that I am just a regular guy and the the people that are going through their journey and 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 you know on on how they've survived their journey in in whatever capacity we're all just real people we're just people you know Yes, we're just people. Cuz we're all obviously real. We're all here on this plane. Whatever this plane is is real in some capacity cuz we're doing this thing that's conversing and creating and whatnot. But um I think that if I were to summarize my life's journey to this point, it's like I am becoming the kid no one believed I could be. 
that's it. That's absolutely it. I am making, like, I'm striving to make moves, not just for myself, but for the people I surround myself with so that we can all obtain something successful. And I don't necessarily mean in, in money, because to me, and and I, and maybe we close here because this is a good uh, thing to talk about, this is the word that I always think about when I make moves in anything I do. It's legacy. What is this going to do to the legacy of me? And is this going to impact what... Like People might not remember me, man. And, and, and I'm just going to be real. Like I could Something could happen. I could fall by the wayside and be forgotten in the annals of history. Whatever. That's a fact. That is just fucking life. Or something that I have done could impact this planet and this world in such a way that people talk about me. And if they're going to be talking, I want them to know that everything I ever did towards my legacy was from my heart. It was for, it was for everyone else to, to, to be a part of this. Cause I don't, I'm nothing. I'm literally nothing without the people that I've been surrounded with because I can only do so much. I can only be so much of a person and I'm only who I am, you know, ultimately, but the people that I've been lucky, you coming into my life and, and Sarah and Veronica and having, having people who don't know that they impact my life, teachers and shit, man, you know, like that's the thing I want to always think about, man, is that my drive and my passion was for us all to feel that we did something bigger than us. Yeah. I love it. I don't. I don't really have anything else, man. I think. I think I'm. Uh, I think I'm tapped. And I mean, unless you want me to start just riffing on crazy stories about my youth. Maybe we can save that for episode two. Ooh, we'll do a. But we can do a bonus episode. I got. I got some interesting uh, life stories and shib. What you and I should do is to do a part two for you, or for for this episode, and for the episode I do, and we just go back and forth telling stupid stories to each other about oh my gosh about our fucking I love life. it oh that's so good a dual <laughs> interview Ugh. it's basically just like lightning round story story he story, needs story. The X. yes god i love peter dinklage <laughs> he's the man he's so good did you see that meme that just started going around today that's like Peter Dinklage reveals he was on his knees for the first eight seasons. Yeah, I fucking dug it. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's so Peter Shit. Dinklage, too. Like, like he's fucking circulating that meme right now. Oh, for sure. Uh, I think... Are, 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 I th- um, first of all, I want to say thank you for conducting <clears throat> an interview on me. I didn't realize we'd go for three hours. I guess I didn't realize I had that much of a, a journey to talk about. Uh, it all feels very consolidated in my brain because I've got, it's like I'm always focused on the next task. So looking back is, is kind of hard. It was really nice to reflect and very lethargic for me to to experience and think about some of the things that I don't take time to think about, man. Um, I really am grateful. I do think about how lucky I am to be in the position I am in my life and have the things I have and have built any modicum of success and have anybody know who the fuck I am to any level. Like 
it, it's exceeded any expectation to who I thought I was going to become, you know. Um, so thank you for doing this today with me. It was really, really genuinely special. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of it. Fucking A, I wouldn't have it any other way, man. But now we're going to be professionals for a second because I'm going to get into the plugs. How about Plug right? it. Plug it away, you my man. You guys can check out The Voice of Survival. I'm going to do that again. Hold on. <laughs> you guys can check out The Voice of Survival podcast right here on the Journey into Comics Network at journeyintocomics.com. You can get us on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Google Play Music, Spotify, CastBox, TuneIn, and many others. Just search Journey into Comics Network or go to patreon.com backslash journey into comics. Give us a dollar for that early access and exclusive contenty goodness. You know you want to, and every dollar you give us helps. Just saying, it really does. It really genuinely fucking helps us. We're so grateful for you all. Anyways, folks, I think that's going to do it. Tyler, thank me for having you as my host and your guest. That's a weird... <laughs> that was a weird one. I had to figure out how to say that on the fly, and then once it came out, I couldn't... Once Pandora's out of the box, you can't put it back in. Nope. She don't want to go but... back. Seriously, man, though, thank you so much. It was, it was a welcome. pleasure chatting with you. Uh, hopefully, like I said, my journey is not a bore. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this week's episode of Journey, or fucking Journey into Comics. Shit, how many times have I done that show journey this fucking in, year that I'm... Journey into Survival Comics. Journey into Survival Voice of Comics. <laughs> wrestling. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, did you just say wrestling out of nowhere? Yes. <laughs> you just gotta wrestling. throw another one in there. Wrestling. <laughs> Okay, sure. I like it. All right, folks. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode of The Voice of Survival. I have been your guest, Nate. And I've been your host, Tyler. And we will see you guys later. Thank you so much for listening. Ciao.